Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 3 of 7 podcast. We have an absolutely amazing story to share with you on today's episode. Um, this is with a friend of mine named Dash. Dash has a story pretty much like no other. Uh, you just have to listen to this show in its entirety to understand what Dash has been through, what he has accomplished, what he has survived throughout his life and throughout his journey. Um, just to hit a few of the points really quick, uh, Dash was born pretty much homeless in Hawaii, grew up on the streets, and uh, had a really, really difficult childhood. Uh, he was adopted. He joined the Navy. He was a Tier 1 operator uh, in the Navy Naval with Naval Special Warfare. Uh, toward the, I guess, middle of his career, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. He had one of his lungs removed, um, which you'll hear from Dash's story. It's a lot more complex than that. Uh, he really goes through it in detail. After he survived his battle with lung cancer here recently, he was also diagnosed with the coronavirus and Dash actually survived coronavirus and um, with one lung and battled through this and he walks us through that and what it was like uh, in that part of his journey. So it's really just three separate furnaces of adversity that he went through that are almost, it's, it's almost unbelievable what Dash has been able to come through and uh, he's maintained his faith in God. He has a beautiful family, two sons, an awesome wife, and uh, is just an amazing individual. This is a long episode, guys, but I wanted it to be that way. I wanted to hear Dash's full story, and uh, that's what we have for you guys here today. I hope you really enjoy it. Now time for a little housekeeping. Today's episode is brought to you by two sponsors. Uh, we're so happy to have these two sponsors on our team. Um, the first sponsor that we have for today is called Natural Rapport. So you guys want to talk about body, soul, and spirit today, right? That's why you're tuning in to the 307 podcast. Well, a big part of my body, soul, and spiritual health are my animals. So we have two dogs here at my house. They are pretty much our children because uh, we don't have human children. So we care for our animals as we care for ourselves. So we are very, very conscious of what we feed them uh, and the products that we use to take care of them. Natural Rapport is a company that makes uncomplicated pet essentials. Um, these products from Natural Rapport are pretty much as close to natural as you can possibly get. They're all made in the USA. Um, the All the treats, um, you know, you've got everything from chicken jerky to beef treats. Um, these are all 100% human-grade meat. It's just a, a really safe way to, I guess, reward your animals at home. It's all that we use. Um, they also have grooming products. They have shampoos, ear wipes. You know, they've got the whole nine yards, anything that you 
need to take care of your best friend. But my, my that's what I call these. They, my, my dogs, they run with me every single day. They're here to greet me when I walk in the house. They love me unconditionally. And it's just a huge, for me, it's a huge part of that nourishment of body, soul, and spirit is having them here for me each and every day and having them uh, when I go out on the trail along with me for that journey. So if you guys are as particular about the way you take care of your animals as I am, please check out Natural Rapport at naturalrapport.com. That's N A T U. R-A-L-R-A-P-P-O-R-T dot com. Naturalrapport.com. Promise you, you won't be disappointed in their products. Um, they are awesome. Dogs love them, and they're safe. Thank you, Natural Report, for sponsoring 307 Podcast. Our next sponsor for today is Exoskin. You guys have heard me talk about Exoskin. I am a believer in exoskin products they make the premier outdoor fitness apparel on the market today every one of their products from their socks to their shorts to their tights to their shirts these things are quality they are made in america down to the very yarn and they function flawlessly they function in ways that other fitness apparel brands just they they just are not even on the same level with Exoskin. Um, Exoskin products, it's a proprietary fabric that actually channels moisture away from the skin, which in turn cuts down on chafing uh, and all the issues that you have with other apparel brands. Uh, another thing, Exoskin fabric has active copper fiber woven into the fabric which actually cuts down on odor-causing bacteria. It allows you to wear these clothing items uh, for multiple training evolutions without them stinking really, really bad. So that's another thing I love about them. You can multiple runs in the same shorts, shirt. They don't stink. They last for years and years. And uh, we love Exoskin. They've supported us from day one. And they're just great people. So if you guys want to purchase some Exoskin, please use our pro code. It's three of seven, the number three of the number seven. That will give you 20% off of your purchase and go to exoskin.us to order your fitness apparel. That's X-O-S-K-I-N.us. Thanks, Exoskin, for all of your support. All right, guys, now here's Dash. I hope you enjoy this one. If you uh, are listening to 307 Podcast on a regular basis, please, please go and give us a review on iTunes. This helps promote our show, and it helps get our show in front of people that otherwise would never hear about it or never find it. So if you guys listen, please take two seconds of your time Go to the Apple app. Leave us a review. That's all I ask. That's all I'm asking for, from you guys. So, appreciate it. Enough said. You know, you got to file for disability and put in all your paperwork. And I was like, I feel horrible putting in for this stuff because I can walk. 
and I can breathe and I can laugh. You know, I'm still in pain. Yeah. You guys are in way more. Uh, you're way more disabled than I am, and that's when like reality really hit me. And uh, there's this old uh, CMC uh, seal who's in a wheelchair, and he came up to me and smacked me upside the head at Nyko. We were sitting in the red room, and just boom, smacked me in the back of the head, and he's like, uh, and of course you just swear. And he had a big old shoe in. Yeah. He's and he's like, oh, what did he say? It's something about like, like don't take pity on me and put it on yourself. He's like, I'm not, and, he, and he, he drew this line. He's like, you look at me and you see someone disabled. He's like, did you ask me if I was disabled? Dash, welcome to the 307 podcast, my man. Dude, it's an honor to be here. Thanks so much for reaching out. It's so good to hear from you. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, the honor is all of is all ours, Dash. Um, <clears throat> you know, you're one of those guys, man, that like, when I first heard your story, I don't know your whole story, but I know bits and pieces of it. And uh, when I first heard it, I think Brandon, Brandon's the one that kind of told me about you. And it was like, it was almost, it was almost unbelievable. I was like, really? This dude has, has really been through the ringer and, and been through some real, you know, furnaces of adversity, as I would call it. And um, not until I got to know you. And got to know who you, you know, who you were, and and uh, your your background, and and your faith, and just the type of person that you are. Like it took that for me to to really like, okay, this guy's legit, man. <laughs> so, I mean, I I don't even, I, I'm not sure where to begin or how to begin this interview, other than beginning it. At the beginning, man, because I think that's kind of where your story, your story begins, dude. And um, just the name Dash, <laughs> where where did that come from, man? Well, uh, again, thanks, thank you again so much for having me. I think the uh, if you're okay with it, the my, the most positive and uh, productive way to start this maybe in prayer. I love it, man. Yeah, so if we if we can do a little prayer and. Um, Hope the Lord speaks through us, and maybe maybe someone that listens to this, if uh, if, our, if my testimony rings true to anybody else, if I can share with them some stuff that I went through, it might help them, and you know, all glory given to God. So, yeah, a hundred percent, brother. Your podcast, man. Maybe you can lead us in prayer, and uh, we'll go from there. I I would be I'd be honored, brother. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my time here with Dash today. I thank you for the fellowship that we have shared. Uh, in the past and the fellowship that we will share here today in the future um, that we have as brothers. And I pray that you would bless him, that you'd bless his family, his children, his wife, his relationships, all that he puts his hands to. Lord Jesus, I ask you right now that it would prosper, Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would guide him, protect him, give him wisdom and understanding, not only during this interview today, but in all that he does throughout the rest of his life. Uh, we thank you for allowing us to be children of yours. We thank you for allowing us to serve you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We love you, Father. We give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor for you are worthy. And Jesus, we pray these things in your mighty name. Thank you. Jesus, man. Amen. Amen. Yes. Now we can start. <laughs> Let's rock and roll, brother. <laughs>
Oh. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, my name is Dash Wong. I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. How, where do you want to go with that? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so I don't know the whole, I don't know the whole story. There's a story behind your name though, right, Dash? Oh yeah. That, that's, that's, that's the story that, cause I've never heard that whole story coming from you, brother. Like I've heard bits and pieces of it from Brandon and other people, I, I want to hear your version of, of that story of how you got the name Dash, man. And um, I think it's a, from what I've heard, it's a, it's awesome, dude. Well, thanks again. I'm just moving because, uh, as you remember, I got two little bags of weeds that run around this place like crazy. So I don't want someone jumping in the camera all naked. <laughs> We're going to talk about them here in a little bit. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so um, it started off in Honolulu, Hawaii. I was born. Um, my father was in the Navy. Um, he met my mother. Um, my mom was an exotic dancer at the time. And uh, as you know, Navy guys hanging out at strip clubs. I guess that's how that whole recipe happened. And then uh, my mom had me. My dad wanted nothing to do with me. So he left my mom. And then uh, my mom was left on her own um, with some pretty rough circumstances. So I was left at the hospital for a bit. And uh, I was nicknamed by the nurses with a one line on my birth certificate. So they kind of hyphened my name as Dash. Um, my mom ended up coming back for me, which was you know, a blessing. And I'm uh, very thankful for that. She raised me till I was about 11. I lived with my real mom. Um, but it was a different lifestyle than most, most children have. I mean, I grew up homeless uh, on the streets of Waikiki. I'd pick a, I, I worked at a cemetery as a kid. And I used to uh, help maintain the grounds. And then in return, um, the graveyard keeper would allow me to pick flowers off the trees, not off the graves, but off the trees, like plumeria flowers and hibiscus flowers and whatnot. So I would string them up with fishing line and take it down to the tourists in Waikiki and I'd sell it. And I did that for, gosh, a good part of six years, selling lays, making money. And all that money went to hot dogs and video games at the arcade, you know, that's all I really knew. Um, my mom got arrested when I was maybe 10 uh, by an undercover cop. And uh, she told him about me and what bus stop I lived at, where I kind of congregated at the beaches. And I used to take showers on the beach. And But the, the interesting thing about that was that was the norm of my life, right? That wasn't, I didn't feel uh, disadvantaged. I didn't feel poor. I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong. It was just my way of life. I was actually pretty happy. Um, had some good friends and did I skateboarded a lot, body surfed. Uh, I was in the ocean probably six, seven times a day, <laughs> either surfing or um, just being a kid. But uh, once she got arrested, uh, undercover cops found me, and uh, that was terrifying because I'm a good kid. Like I, I wasn't, you know, trying to get in trouble. wasn't wasn't in any gangs or anything. But uh, <clears throat> when I got arrested, I remember put, they put handcuffs on me, and uh, it was like eight clock at night and I was standing on the streets of Waikiki and they're like, you need to come with me. And uh, going into a cop car, then driving all the way to the other side of the island that I've never been on and then getting, uh, basically going to Child Protective Services and getting put in a foster home. And it, it wasn't until I got into a foster home that I realized like my whole life is about to change. You know, like this is something's not, uh, it definitely took me out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, uh, I was blessed to be adopted uh, a year later by uh, Andrew and Don, who's my foster parents or adopted parents, uh, and they're the Wongs. So that's how I got my last name, Wong. And uh, so my full name is Dash Dong Wong, which is pretty, uh, <laughs> you can only imagine the amount of flack I got in the teams with that. <laughs> it's so, it's that is such an epic story, dude. Like yep. nobody else on earth has a freaking story that can match that, man. That is it's, it's just so awesome, dude. And it was surreal. It was totally surreal. And <laughs> and uh, but when I got adopted, I I basically started the started the school in the fifth grade. So um. I didn't, I knew how to read, but I wasn't at fifth grade level reading. I, I knew how to do math and that was basically with money because that's all I dealt with. Um, but you know, so far behind the curve and my, my parents were Asian, my foster parents were Asian and they're so strict, like academics is everything. So man, what a blessing, you know, the Lord's work, the Lord's always worked in my life and uh, done some phenomenal, phenomenal things for me. And, um, to be put in that environment where they could nourish me and educate me and bring me up to standards. I basically graduated high school with honors, um, had a 3.9 GPA. Um, and I had a, had a full, uh, or I had a package submitted to go to the air, air force Academy, um, signed by the governor. I went to J, uh, air force JROTC. Uh, so I knew I was going to go into the military. Uh, I just didn't realize I was going to go into the Navy. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a it was a roller coaster ride for sure. Um, a lot of low points, especially being homeless, and I got put in like under underground like fight stings where like um, other drug drug pimps and um, drug dealers would bring their kids over to a, like a hotel where we're staying, and us kids would have to fight each other, and they would bet on us. It's kind of like you know they bet on chickens or whatever. That all of this like. It was weird. It's like all like this little compartmentalized parts of my life that um, I look back and reflect on it, not as not in a negative way, but just like, wow, I went through all of that and I ended up here. And I think the one thing that helped me was I was always positive. Like, you know, life, life can, you can look at a problem in two different ways, negative or positive. It's your choice. And I always made the choice to see the good, even, even in the slums, like life was good. You know, I was, I had food or, I had shelter, I had friends, I had some, someone to confide in. I always felt like the Lord was there, but I never knew him, you know, mm -hmm. like he was always in my life, but I had no idea who he was. So it's really cool to reflect back on the hardship of life. And I'm glad that I went through it. Um, only cause I have such, such an appreciation for it, you know, like, but, uh, yeah, that's a kind of a long rant about my childhood. No, man. And <laughs> you know, Dash, I talk about that, that story being awesome. And, and I, I mean that, from a standpoint of it's awesome that you went through that and now you are who you are today because it's like you beat all odds, man. And that's, that's why I say that that story was awesome. It's not, it's not making light of the hardship or, or the, the things that, that you probably went through as a young man, um, you know, or as, as a child, uh, yeah. but, um, but what makes it so just motivating is that you are who you are today. You are just a powerful, powerful man of God. Um, I, from the first time, uh, you and I had a conversation on my back porch in Virginia, 
you know, that was when I, I came to the realization. I was like, there's something about Dash that it's just, it's just special, man. It's so unique. And, and uh, you know, that's one of those moments uh, it, that was a powerful uh, connection and a powerful moment in my life that I can vividly, vividly remember. And uh, I think it's just because God has his hand on you and he's had his hand on you uh, probably, I know, since the beginning. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the, the soul being where the battle is, like the mind, will, and the emotions. And coming up as a child and um, being in those types of environments, you know, how what you say the positivity is the main factor that allowed you to, um, I guess, maintain control or maintain a healthy uh, soul or or you know your emotional side, your 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 thought life. You know, what, give me some examples where that played in, or may, maybe some stories where that kind of played in, and and that positivity or whatever helped you through you know a specific time. Um, when you were going through all that as a child, man, can you remember any specific? Uh, yeah, no, there were, there were a lot of times. Uh, I'll give you one example. I remember being nine years old and uh, we were in an apartment and <clears throat> in this apartment they had, you know, all the drug, all the drug lords and, and pimps in there with their kids and, and all these kids were just rough. I mean, they were just, you know, they, you know, they've been through probably the same or worse what I was going through. And we were standing in line in a hallway. I must have had five or six kids in front of me and a couple of kids behind me. And we were going in pairs into the living room. And our job was to beat the living crap out of each other. And the last guy standing, you know, he gets, to, he's done. He's done for the day. You don't have to fight anymore. You put off the side. And I remember standing in this line and the kid in front of me was terrified. He didn't want to go in there. He didn't want to fight. And I, I was kind of nervous. I didn't really understand like the extent of what was about to happen, but I knew I was going to have to defend myself. And, you know, I looked at this kid in the front. And I told him, I was like, hey, man, everything's going to be okay. I was like, you don't got nothing to be afraid of. And it's empathy. I think perspective is one thing to have, right? Especially in, in challenging times, you know, your perspective can get you through it, but you can't get through things alone. Um, the, the real reason you make or break is because you surround yourself by people that share the same values, values as you. But if not, if nobody does, then you have to be that light in the darkness. And I was always that, that light. And I I've always been extremely empathetic. Um, my ability to put myself in other people's shoes to try to figure out what they're going through. Um, it could be a double-edged sword too, because they can drag you down, but um, that's helped me out tremendously to build a relationship with someone in line that we're about to go into a rink and, and fight each other and just to just share love and be like, dude, I understand what you're going through. We're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. Um, I remember fighting this kid and he was awful. He was just awful. Like he had no guard. He had, he had no ground skills, nothing. And I've been doing this for a couple of months. So I remember grabbing this kid by his collars as he's trying to swing at me. And I laid down on my back and I pulled him on top of me. And I just grabbed one of his hands and I just kind of directed him like this hit me like here, here. And we're on the ground rolling. And I just, get, I basically gave up. I laid on the ground and like, you got it. Like, this, this kid's just kicking my butt when he wasn't. And we built such a relationship through that, that 
you know, I think, I think that that's a key moment where it, it really changed my mind of like, nobody wants to be in these dark places. You know, we kind of just got put in it and we have to get through it. Um, but to stand up and to be that bigger guy, to, to, uh, to be a mentor to somebody, to be that light in the darkness that, um, it, it kind of, that's, that's the key point that I look back into like everything that I've, I've gone through in the rest of my life, you know, whether it be cancer or COVID or, or, you know, being forced to make to retire on a short notice, like these things could be extremely negative. You can, you know, you can downplay them. You can always ask why me, or, you know, a lot of prayers when you're going through turmoil or hardship, you look at the Lord and you're like, what are you doing? And like, why are you doing this in my life? Um, and then you reflect back on like Moses when he had to lead all the people out of, out of Pharaoh's grip. And that was hard times. I mean, 40 years lost in the desert, you know, these guys all complain to Moses, like, why is God punishing us? Like, why is he putting through us? If we're his chosen people, I reflect back on that now, now that I'm saved, I look back at everything I did and it's, it was all part of like being forged in the fire, right? Like, especially if you have, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the perspective of a heavenly kingdom, like you can look at these problems as not so much why me, but more so what, what next, like what's, what's next? How can I prepare myself? And that's what we do in the teams, right? When we get, when we're faced with problems or obstacles, you know, I'm a SWIC, I'm not a SEAL, but it's been a lot of times with, with SEALs and a lot of times overseas deployed with you guys. And um, we, we encounter, you know, vehicles down or, or casualties that we got to do extracts on. Uh, it's not, we don't downplay it as like, oh, why is, why is the world crumbling on us? Mm-hmm. It never happens, mm-hmm. right? It's always what's next? How do we stabilize? How do we plan three moves ahead? How do we stay ahead of the enemy? And that's the same way to go about life. You got to stay focused and you got to have you got to be positive right you can't dig yourself down in the dumps and just be like oh it's just it's over <laughs> you know it's, you're not going to make it <laughs> yeah nothing's going to happen man if that's if that's the attitude that you have that's for sure you know it's just dude it's just so it's so cool to me that that that, that empathy and that positivity was was just it's just part of you. It's it's it was just a part of you, even as a as a child, um, in those situations. It was just it's it's woven within the fibers of your being, and uh, you know that's that's definitely a powerful thing because most of us have to get taught those things, you know, and and we have mentors that that teach us those things, but you know, y- you having it at such a young age and what a powerful story that was that you shared um when you were in that that fight that battle with that other you know young man and you were guiding his punches because uh, you had empathy for him and and you were developing that relationship and then you sharing your courage with him and saying everything's going to be okay i mean that's that's unbelievable dude like this story needs to be told to the entire world because uh, i mean you you can't even un, you, you can't even believe stuff like this happens in the world but but then you know to have a first hand account of it and and pull lessons out of it is just the value is in, immeasurable um and moving forward from your childhood dash when did you when did you meet god man or when when did you be when did you get saved was that uh, prior to going in the military or or after man it was 2015 in August. Okay, okay. So we'll we'll hit we'll hit that then. I want you to walk me through from <laughs> you, you graduated high school. You did very well. 
um, and you thought you were going to go in the Air Force, and and you ended up going in the Navy. I want I want to walk through that scenario all the way up to the point uh, that you get saved, man. I want to keep it in that order if if we can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I graduated high school at seventeen, um, and so my Air Force Academy package got submitted late, so I had to wait for the next class. So basically, I had to wait six months to go into the next uh, the next class, and. Uh, being in Hawaii and having the background that I had and knowing the people that I knew, I just really was done. Like I did not want to be in the Island anymore. Um, I was excited to start a new chapter in my life. My, my foster dad was a, uh, or my adopted father, I just call him dad, but, uh, he was a, a famous tattoo artist. Uh, and, uh, so basically I was helping him run his shop and, you know, I started at 14. I started shaving people's arms and shaving people's backs before my dad suited them up, suited them up. And I was like, dude, this job sucks. <laughs> like, and my father wanted to build this empire up, right? And wanted to give it to me. And he's training me to like you know, do stencil cutouts and, you know, trace and shade and do all this. And, and uh, I kind of had a knack for, for, uh, for art, but it just what I, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Like I did not want to tattoo people. I didn't even like being tattooed. I was actually terrified of needles before I joined the Navy. And, uh, so anyway, I came home and I was like, yeah, I got to wait six months to class up and uh, I'm just going to go see what other options I have that are on the table. I'm going to talk to some Navy recruiters. Um, the reason I did that is in high school, I was part of a, uh, it was like a air force special forces team. And basically, we got together, long runs, ruck runs, pull-up, push-up contests, and we'd tie like this army rope bridge across the stream, and you had to like clip in and get across the rope. We'd do rappels off buildings, and I was like, this is fun. Like, I love the tight-knit groups. I love being competitive. Um, I love to win. And uh, I was telling and one of my best friends, who was a, a – he helped me run the Special Forces program in, in, uh, in my senior year. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go become a SEAL. I'm going to go to Bud's. I'm going to go class up. And I was like, wow, like why? Like, that sounds cool. But like, why are you doing that? We're supposed to, we should go to the Air Force. We did four years in JRO, uh, Air Force, JROTC. I was like, we got all this, um, you get promoted faster and you get recommendations um, when you get to the academy. I was like, we're already set. We should do this. He's like, no, there's some pretty good options on the table. One was there was a huge incentive to make it through buds. Right. Yep. I think he was like, it was like $40,000 at the time. This was back in 2005 yep. uh, when they were doing that. And I was like, man, that's, a, that's a, I've never seen that kind of money in my entire life. And I was like, they're going to give you all that money just to like graduate. I was like, that sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went down to Navy recruiter, uh, went with him and it was like a, you had to be there at four in the morning. And there's all these kids. We're all lined up, and it's basically there was a seal there. They had, uh, SDV team one, and uh, he came, uh, the seal came out. I forgot his name, and he just run kids through the gamut. We had everyone there from like 26 year old guys to like 17. Me being less, I was 120 pounds. I looked like uh, Captain America before he got the serum. <laughs> uh, just, just like just all shriveled up, this scrawny, scrawny dude, and. Um, <laughs> standing in line with all these like meatheads, man. Like yeah. these guys knew what they're getting into and they were just ready to crush. And I was like, Whoa, this is a level I've never seen. You know, the testosterone was there, the competitiveness. And I was like, dude, I'm going against like full grown men. Like I don't even know what it means to be a man yet, but I'm going against full grown men. And I loved it. I just, 
And I smoke checked everybody and they, it was, I forget what they call like Indoc or it's kind of like how you have dive motivators when you're in boot camp. Yeah. And you go to dive and pull phase, whatever. It's like that. But basically it was they were seeing if you even had what it took to qualify. Yep. So I did it. I crushed the swims and the pull-ups and push-ups, and I just smoke checked everybody. And they're like, wow. Um, and the part that that kind of knocked me back was uh I got permanent tubes in my ears, so I can't dive. Um, so because of my medical screening, I was not allowed to go under a buzz contract. Uh, so I went swick because uh, it was the next best thing. And I was like, dude, those guys are groovy, like driving around cool boats and shooting big guns and taking care of the bros. Like, I'm all about that. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and that was that. I signed the papers pretty much that next week. I signed my papers and I was underage. So my, uh, my adopted father had to sign my paperwork and they were pissed. Like they wanted me to go to the chair force. They like, they knew it was safe and kosher. Um, they knew I wanted to go into like Intel or like some nerdy thing with computers. And uh, I was like, no, no, I'm going to the special forces program. And I'm like, damn it. Yeah, man. <laughs> Well, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to pause you real quick because there's a lot of similarities, I think, between your, what you, you know, your, your story. And then my story, when I went and decided I wanted to become a SEAL, same thing with me, dude, they were doing that $40,000, uh, basically bonus if you graduated buds and, and same as you, I thought, man, if I can graduate this program and they give me $40,000, dude, I'm going to be set for life. Like I was going around telling, <laughs> I was going around telling my buddies like, man, forty thousand. I never even heard of. I didn't even know that people existed that had that much money in their bank account all at one time. So that was a huge driving factor, man. Um, that's pretty cool that you said that because I felt the same way about that. I mean, we were we definitely weren't dirt poor, but um, you know, we didn't have a a ton of money ever growing up. So. Um, but it's funny because I remember when I graduated boot camp, just straight out of boot camp, you know, you go to A school before you class up. And I remember, you know, you get your first, you get a couple paychecks, right? Yeah. So eight weeks or whatever. I remember seeing $1,200 in my, my checking account. I've never had a checking account. Yeah. $1,200 in there, Chad. And I instantly like got on a payphone. I'm, at boot, I'm in Great Lakes. I went to a payphone and put my coins in. I called all my friends from, uh, from Hawaii and I was like, dude, I'm rich. Bitch. During this boot camp, it was the easiest thing in the world. I got $1,200. Went straight to the mall, bought a skateboard, uh, bought new shoes. And I was like, I've got so much mess. I'm going to get a hot dog. I'm going to get a cheeseburger. I can get whatever I want. I know it, man. I'm right there with you. I went through that same process, dude. It's uh it's pretty hilarious how similar uh, our, our, uh, our mindsets were going through that, man. And, um, so real quick too, I want to explain to the listeners what SWIC is, um, because I think a lot of people are familiar with what SEALs are, and uh, SWIC, I, I want to definitely get your uh, viewpoint on, or, or your expertise, because that is what you did, Dash, and um, for me, I'll go ahead and give you my piece on it. Uh, these SWIC guys, they are, uh, they are spend a lot of time in some super harsh conditions. I mean, the job that, that you guys perform, dude, when we would in, in training or downrange, I always felt bad for you guys because I was like, 
These guys are getting hammered, son. I mean, for hours and hours and hours. So I got the utmost respect uh, for the SWIC teams and what you guys do. And, and give us your take on it real quick, and then we'll push forward with your story, man. Um, so SWIC stands for it's SWCC. It uh, stands for Special Warfare Combatant Craft Crewmen. And uh, basically, we come from a, a long tradition of the uh, uh, from Vietnam, all the all the river rats, basically that patrolled on the PBR boats back in the day. And um, the reason they stood up SWIC was because of you know Army SF um, SEALs and uh, and you know Marine Recon. They needed a way to to, to be infilled, but they also needed a platform that could provide uh, Overwatch and security it's on on the rivers. They're just getting attacked left and right, and you know, all these special forces groups had such a niche of what they were going to fight. And then, and there are certain mission sets they were doing that to add on a time platform and heavy weapons. It just, it just was too much. We were overcast saturated. So they started up SWIC to kind of break up um, the responsibilities between all the forces. And we became the maritime infill and extract platform for uh, mainly SEALs because we were named um, Army CAG, you know, Spartans, everybody. Uh, we, we've been we've been infilling and working uh, together, and it's not just boats, right? Like, uh, it's definitely uh, evolved over the years. So when I started in 2006, it was like these old bus meter ribs with like these sponsons on the side of them, and now we're operating high speed crafts. We got 200 ton captain's license. Uh, we're taking out Merce ships, and we're just we're we're basically. Uh, we drive, we drive MRAPs and, and Hiluxes and, and side-by-sides and dirt bikes. And uh, the way I like to look at it is uh, there's a 160th in the Army. They're known as like the most badass helicopter pilots in the, in the world, bar none. And yep. These guys get Special Forces uh, um, operators where they need to go, when they need to go, on time and on target. Uh, and they'll never quit. They'll never fail because that's just the way they were trained. Well, we're the exact same except we have a different platform, right? So anything on the water or anything that moves on land is kind of our expertise. And uh, yeah. Yeah, but that's solid. I brother. always thought about it as such an honor to serve, yeah, such an honor to serve the, the brothers, you know, to feel like you're a piece of the team, to know that you can contribute, um, to make other people's lives uh, just a little bit easier in a, in a hostile environment. I was dug it. It was the bomb. Yeah, yeah, man. You guys, uh, you guys had a extremely tough job you guys every time i've worked with you guys obviously with swick guys extensively um always very professional always squared away always knew their gear knew their knew their boats knew knew the platform inside and out and uh reliable and just wait i mean you guys you guys were awesome and got the utmost respect again for all that you that you and all your brothers in swick uh do for the seal teams uh, and, and for everybody else, man, it's a, it's an amazing job. Anybody out there looking for a, uh, a good time in the Navy and you think you're hard, that's a good option for you. And your so, ad that doesn't have to be as high as a steel and you can be at the 55 level. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you, you move, you, you, you get your contract signed, man, and you go, you, you obviously go to boot camp. You get you you get your twelve hundred bucks. You go down there to the that mall. I forget what that mall was called in Chicago, man. I can't even right. remember. Um, and uh, oh, gosh, <laughs> this is where this is where my Navy career gets insane. <laughs> this is it's it's insane. What happens, tell, man? 
when I tell people this story, they like, you know, command master chiefs where I sit down and have, have a beer with them. I'm telling my startup from boot camp to where I made it. They're like, how did that happen? Like, does it make any sense? Mm-hmm. And uh, it all started the day I graduated boot camp. And I don't know if you can remin- reminisce on that, but it's, you know, the, it's a Thursday. You do your graduation ceremony. You guys all march down. You get the color garden flags on Friday. Everyone wakes up super early. You get your sea bags packed and you're, you have to go to the bus. And basically the bus takes you from boot camp, drives you across the street to basically a, they call it an A school, but it's where they kind of just train you up on like fire safety or, you know, something to hold you off before you fly out to California. Well, I didn't do any of that. I thought it was super cool and special. So on Friday, me and my buddies, there was five of us in my, uh, in my uh, division. There were five of us that went to Divemo. So there was two uh, EOD guys or two guys with the EOD contract, two guys with the SEAL contract. I was the only slick guy. And uh, <clears throat> wake up Friday morning. We're like, no, we're not riding on the bus. We got Divemo to go to. So we go to the pool and we leave all our stuff and no one's there. Like this, the whole entire uh, base is just a, a ghost town. So we come back to our sea bags and our entire division is gone. There's no buses. No one's there waiting for us. And so we're just five dudes like twiddling our thumbs. Like, well, what do we do? And uh, so I was like, well, we, I know we need to go to the other base. So we might as well just march. So we get in our, you know, our column. There's two abreast. We're marching. We march off this base. We mar- and we're in our dress blues. And we march onto this other base. And we're sluting the flagpole and everything. We don't know where to go. Like we have our orders, no idea how to read these things. And my buddy goes, well, there's a gateway in. I'm pretty sure that's where everyone goes. So we check into the gateway in and I lived there for a week, but I'm like, just had my own room. Um, was going to the mall, was watching movies and looking out my window every morning. And I'd see all these guys marching up and down the road. I was like, that sucks. I'm so glad I'm not doing that. <laughs> so good to be in this, you know, this special program. Yeah. Well, on day, it was about day six. We get a pound, like everyone just gets hit pounding on their door. And it's the MPs. And the MPs like grab us and they take us out in this courtyard. We're all standing there at attention. And they're like, you guys have been AWOL for six days. Oh, like, we've been looking up for dude. you. And uh, our flight left um, Great, uh, Great Lakes. Um, basically on day eight. So I had two more days to wait, right? And I was like, oh no, well, they can't do too much to us. So we had to sweep and mop floors for the entire two days. We're on every single watch duty bill. And uh, <laughs> so that was our first mess up. The second mess up is we get on our plane. We're like, all right, we're free, free from Great Lakes. And uh, we're headed to you know Coronado, the infamous Coronado. And um, we get off our plane in San Diego and there's a taxi there. So five of us jump in this taxi, this van taxi, and we're like, take us to the SEAL team base. We're going through training. <laughs> and the driver looks at us, you know, we, we're just, we're so dumb. We're just so dumb. Oh, yeah. Just like, yeah. Take us to the SEAL team base. We're going through training. Yeah. And the guy, the guy like looks at us and he's like, okay. And mind you, I'm, seven, I'm 17. So like, I'm just this squirt. And he takes us to uh, the air base, the and it, uh uh nas naval air station yeah yeah so those for the listeners who don't know coronado you got like two bases right you got the air station the airfields and everything and you have nab which is an amphib base and that's where buds the buds compound is down there where uh seals and swick train swicks have their own pipeline the seals have their have their buds but we all kind of congregate there 
I had no idea that. So we get out of this taxi, again, get into our, our you know, two-file column, and we're marching on to the, to the air station. We're saluting the flagpole, and we go to the first building we see, and it just so happened to be a Sear, the Sear School building. So <laughs> we go in there with our orders. We're like, yeah, oh, you know, we're going through this training, uh, so-and-so. And they're like, we don't – I was the first guy. He's like, I don't know what a SWIC is. And I was and I was trying to explain it to him. I was like, "Oh, we're boat guys, you know. Like we take the take the special forces guys and the seals around." And he's like, "I was like, okay." He's like, "But I see on here that you have seer school on here, because after our pipeline, you have to go to uh, uh, seer school." Mm-hmm. Well, I can sign you guys up for seer school in two weeks. And I was like, "All right, perfect." So <laughs> and you're fresh from boot camp. Yep, yeah, fresh from boot camp. Very next school, seer school. <laughs> And in the I'm world, in, dude. But, but for three weeks, they had not, they didn't know what to do with us. Sears school wasn't open. So I remember the, uh, it was a chief and he gave us all brooms. He was like, can you guys just sweep the parking lots every morning and say, you know, so I could say you guys did something. It's like, yeah, I'll sweep the parking lot. It took us like an hour. Broom the parking lot. Boom. I was up in my room, had my skateboard and I was skate, skating Coronado every day. Texting my friends, just calling up. I was like, dude, you gotta join the Navy. It's the best. <laughs> and uh went to seer school and had my just world rocked it was not expecting that uh i watched gi jane you know and i was thinking like oh yeah they're gonna beat us up but that was hollywood right yeah i mean what was seer school like for you first off so we went we went we have our own now i guess seer school is organic so we go through seer in, in SQT, which is SEAL qualification training, with our class. So it's the guys that made it through BUDS, and then we go through SQT together. And so it's all former SEALs are teaching our SEER school, and it's all done down there, you know, in Southern California in different locations. Um, but, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty – it was pretty brutal. I mean – but we had all, all of us had been through buds. We had been through most of SQT. It was like, this was like the final step of, of the process. So nobody was going to quit. Uh, it, it did suck. And actually in SEER school, I got in really big trouble in SEER school because uh, we were doing a, a like escape and evade exercise up on NOB, the big base where you were. And I don't know if you remember, but there was this, just just trashy Asian restaurant on all those bases up there called the Rice King. And uh, <laughs> yeah. and so and so we were supposed to like we were supposed to like assimilate, like get out of our uniforms and like just blend in with everybody else on base and end up escaping. Well, so we we actually the, the Rice King had left one of their windows open. So we climbed in through the window and went into the Rice King and took a bunch of their Rice King t-shirts that the employees wore. Like we raided their locker room and yeah. dressed up like Rice King employees and walked out and like escaped off the base. And um, yeah, when we finally like turned ourselves in to the instructor staff, they were like, where'd you get this these uniforms? And we we're like, oh, we got them from the freaking Rice King. They left their window open. And they like actually, our instructor's, actually like threw us under the bus and they were trying to like prosecute us from stealing from this trashy Asian 
I don't Chinese or whatever restaurant on a naval base when we were just trying to do our part. Like we were playing the game, dude. Right. So um, it turned into a, a big freaking nut roll for me, man. I, <laughs> I almost got kicked out of training for that. And uh, right there at the very end, dude, that's the last thing we did in SQT. So I like almost got, I almost got kicked out of Swick school at the very end too. Mm. That's, that's, that's crazy. But how, I mean, you're going through dang, you, you leave boot camp, you fly out to Coronado and you go to Sears. Like that is just, I don't even know how I think, I don't even know how that's possible. You just go into Sears school straight from boot camp. And I guess that's the Navy. I mean, the Navy's this massive machine and stuff like that can happen. But, dude, I could only imagine, like, what in the heck were you thinking, man? I, I was I was uh, I was in shock. I bet you were. I, I remember uh, basically you do have to turn yourself in at a certain point in senior school. Yeah. And you got to go you got to go through like the, uh, you know, you're in internment camp or getting waterboarded and all that stuff. And I remember I was like. The number one rule I remember was, uh, especially going through that in dock in Hawaii, was to always be the gray man. Like, just be the gray man. Yeah. Don't try to shine a light. Like, don't try to be this big, high, and mighty, strong guy. And don't be the super smart guy. Just kind of like stay in the middle of the stack, but, you know, help your guys out. So I'm in Sears school and we're turning ourselves in. We've got masks on our head and zip cuffed, right? And we're walking into this camp. And uh, we all stand in line. These guys are slapping these numbers on our chest or war criminal numbers. And I was like, like, just be the gray man. It's cool. I got this. Because I can blend in. And the, you know, the one of the role players is coming through and smacking people in the face. Oh, Don't yeah. look at me. And he comes by and like punches another guy. Don't look at me. And he gets up to looking at him. Not looking at him. Just looking straight ahead. Dead attention. And he smiles. And he looks at the next guy, which is actually my uh, my swim buddy. He was a he was a F eighteen fighter pilot. Um, just going through the pipeline, but Sear, he had to go through Sear school. He's tall, six foot two dude. And uh, he looks at him and he goes, Tell me your war criminal number. And, you know, my buddy looked at him. He's like, My name is, you know, John Smith. And the guy looks at him. He's like, Oh, wise guy. He's like, Tell me your war criminal number. He's like, My name is John Smith. He's like, Okay. And the instructor looks at me, grabs me by the collar, picks me up. Puts me in front of him, just starts smacking the crap out of me, dude. Just, boom, I'm getting rocked. I'm like, oh, oh, man. My bell is ringing. Like, my ears are ringing. And I'm looking at my partner. And I'm like, whoa. And he just looks at me. He's like, I'm so sorry. And he's like, you tell me your war criminal number or we kill the baby child. So for the next four days, I was the baby child. <laughs> and anybody epic, who messed up, anybody who, you know, didn't drink water or, didn't listen. They brought the baby child out and just beat the crap out of me. That's like, rough, brother. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was not the gray man. But uh, I was so happy to graduate Sear School. And uh, after I graduated Sear School, we checked into Swick School. And uh, when I checked in, they it was me and another guy. And they looked at us and like, we've been waiting for you for two months. Like, Where have you been? Yeah. And I, and I just told him, I was like, well, we went through Sears school. And then after Sears school, we came here. And they're like, you guys already went through Sears? Like, yeah, I thought we were, we were supposed to go. So uh, I ended up classing up in class 5-5, five, five, uh, class 5-5. Five, five, and then uh, I ended up graduating in class 5-6. Uh, main reason is on a, on a, you know, that big run that you do from 
the oak horse past the demo pits all the way down the IB to the elephant cages and back. Yep. And uh, while doing that run, I blew my ITB my ITB band out, and uh, but uh, so they ended up rolling me to the next class. Mm-hmm. And on my on in class five six, it was the is like two weeks from graduation, and uh, I was huge into airsoft in Hawaii, and I loved to play paintball, and uh, so I I had this whole rig, in my uh, uh, what do you call those those old army backpacks that they give us with the uh, frame the Alice pack. Alice pack yeah. And I had this Alice pack decked out. I mean, CO2 bottles on the side. I had all my, my balls. I had, you know, my, I had two uh, angel guns in there, and I'd play competitively. But you're not allowed to have it on any base, um, or at least our base, because they check our lockers. And so on the air base, my buddy, we got a storage locker. And my buddy drives it to the air base, and I don't know if, uh, I don't know if you remember, but at the, north, at the very tip of North Island, there's that long jetty that comes off called Zuniga Jetty. Oh, yeah. And everyone goes bugging there. It's super illegal. Don't do it. If you're watching this, don't do it. Um, but they decided they wanted to go bugging. Um, I'm not a big bugger. I don't really, I didn't really care for it. I just want to put my paintball gear in my storage locker and go home. So I waited in the truck. And as I'm waiting in the truck, an MP comes along because we're parked in a restricted area. This is like the ammo, uh, the ammo uh, section of the base where they keep all the weapon or all the uh, bullets and he's like what are you doing here and i was super cool with him i was like oh my buddies are swimming in the ocean and I'm, I'm just here to put stuff in my storage locker he's like well what do you got and i was like all oh, my paintball gear he's like oh it's fine he's like what are your buddies doing out there and he knew he wasn't dumb he knew they were out there trying to get some some lobsters and i was yeah. like i don't know i think they're swimming so they came out of the water and of course they thought they were all high and mighty two weeks from graduating and they're just like yeah, we're just getting some bucks. I don't see why you're being such a you know douche. Like you know, lay off. And that wasn't the right things to say to this guy. So we got arrested, um, got put in a holding cell, and this was Fourth of July. Wow, man! And so the cadre had to come and bail us out of North Island Jail on Fourth of July. And I remember it was our warrant officer, the uh, for the schoolhouse, who picked us up. He's driving me, and I'm in the front seat of his truck, and you can see the fireworks going off. Over, uh, over the, over the San Diego Bay, and I looked at him, and uh, he was like, "You know, I had to pick you guys up. I had to leave my family on the beach to get you guys. And I'm dropping you off. And we're gonna deal with this uh, on the next day." And uh, I thought it was done, man. Like I was like, "Dude, he's gonna drop us. Like this is it." And um, all my buddies got dropped except for me. So wow. For some dude. reason, they decided, <laughs> they decided to keep me around. They're like, "We know you're not a troublemaker." You know, you don't do these stupid things. He's like, but I ended up standing watch for a month after I graduated on the, uh, uh, what do you guys call it? Um, what's the Bud's compound where you got the, the dive tower? There's a gate there. Yeah, I know exactly where you're talking about. I don't I don't even, I, I just always called it the Bud's compound. I don't that's know. It. Which, yeah, I, was a, I was a road guard there for a month. Yeah. No car came through. There was no cars. <laughs> I just had to stand there in my dress blues every day. Dude, isn't, but, uh, that, isn't that a isn't that a terrible feeling too? Like being right at the end of training, and I, I can remember that, like just that feeling in my stomach. Like you at that point, you have so much invested in what you've done, and you've been through so much, and you're right there at the end, and it's like, oh my gosh, are they really gonna kick me out for this? Like yeah. it's it's just that was one of the worst feelings. Uh, 
of my life. Like, and maybe that's why that's the one thing I remember from Sears school is, is that memory because it kind of trumped all the other bull crap that we had to go through during that course of instruction, that feeling of, I was literally just trying to be smart and play the game. And now they're, they're considering taking everything away from me, um, yeah. you know, by, by throwing me under the bus. And, you know, that, that was a, that was a rough feeling, man. So I can only imagine you went through the, the same thing, but it was obviously uh, part of God's plan for your life to, to carry on and uh, graduate training and get to the teams, man. And, um, where does it, where does the story go from there, brother? Uh, so from there, I, I checked into Special Team 12, which is uh, right there across the street from the Bud's compound. And um, I checked into my first uh, detachment, detachment Kilo. And uh, man, I was gung ho. I was, uh, I had, you know, my, my wife uh, now, but she was my girlfriend at the time, um, rooting me on. And uh, just, it was a whole different pace of life because everything I did was a thousand percent for the teams. Like it was like team first relationship second. Yep. Like I hate to admit it. And even, uh, even before I got forced to retire, uh, that perspective of that was the hardest thing for transition for me was I always said I put family first, but when I said that it was the brothers that I was putting first, like they're my family. So I'm going to do everything for them first, you know, team gear, my gear, me, I'm last on the stack, I'm making sure my brothers are good. My gear is good. Uh, then when I got home and took everything off and hung up my kit and I had, you know, my beautiful wife and, and our home, it was like, okay, switch. And she realized like she wasn't going to get the attention that she wanted and just totally different pace of life from what all her friends were having. You know, they had stable boyfriends at the time and, you know, going out and partying and we just didn't get to do any of that. So it was, yep. it was, anytime there was an opportunity like, hey, we need a volunteer to go out to San Clemente Island. It's like, oh, it's me. Or we need someone to play op four. I was like, yeah, that's me. Um, so what that ultimately led to was in my six years at Special Team 12, I did five deployments, um, just back to back to back. And it was all to Kenya, um, doing FID, which is formal internal defense, training uh, the Kenyans, uh, training their sports special forces team, and like doing like, um, like counter uh, uh, drug countering, uh, drug trafficking, like patrols up on up the on the Indian ocean. Uh, so I was just never home. So after this, after the six years, um, my contract was up and my wife, she was like, you know, I'd really like you to retire or not retire, but to get out. She's like, you got a full GI bill. And she graduated from Pepperdine. So she's a lot smarter than I am. And, uh, she's like, you should go to college, go to SDSU, you know, and, and, uh, start off a new career. You're young. Like, we can get through this. And, uh, I said, yes. I was like, you know what? Like, why not? I was kind of burnt out. Um, I'm sure you remember like, like in the teams, it's, it's, it turned into this very prolonged grand hugs day, right. Of just your different sections of training and then deploying and you come back and it's like ABCD deploy come back. And it's, it's a train that never stops. And then the, after six years, like the scenarios are the same and yep. are you, you're, you're the guy who's trying to change the scenario a little bit. And, uh, you know, I started to see it and I wasn't, I wasn't doing the, the fighting that I wanted to do. I wasn't uh, getting the missions that I thought I was going to get. And uh, I had a lot of joy and I was proud of what I did, but I was like, yeah, maybe I should try something else. And uh, things took a big turn for me because uh, my command master chief, 
pulled me aside uh, after I went through TAPS. They didn't think I was serious. But TAPS is a transition assistance program that the Navy provides. But you have to go through TAPS if you're planning on getting out. Um, It's mandatory. So I signed up, did my TAPS course. And they have to get signed off by your command. And they're like, you've already, you've been through TAPS? I was like, yeah, I'm going to get out. Um, and my master chief asked me, he's like, there's an augment deployment with a, you know, a tier one uh, group in the Navy. Like, we'd like you to go and do an augment with them for four months. And then when you come home, you'll have three months left on your contract and you can get out. And uh, he's like, that's the best way we can use you. You got all these qualifications. Um, I think that's the best way for you to go. He's like, you can end your career on a high note. I was like, well, cool. Like, let's go do this. So I did an augment deployment. Um, and that changed my life forever because we did two hostage rescues. Um, got into a bunch of firefights. We, uh, we, you know, we did a lot of really good work out there. Like in my entire Navy career, I've never done as much work in four months than I did in my entire career. And, uh, I remember going in for the hostage rescue mission and just seeing these guys jump out of a C5 or a C17. And all the land in the water, we're picking them up straight from pickup, going straight to the target. And as we're going in, my OIC at the time, he like grabs him by the shoulder. He's like, Hey, I know when you get back, you know, you only got a couple months and, uh, you know, you're thinking about getting out. He's like, But if you re enlist right now, like on this mission, I'll guarantee you a spot uh, to go through training in green team. And I was like, Done. <laughs> like, that was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. It's like, You got assets out the yin yang, you guys yeah. got all this. Gucci gear and like everyone's super tight. I was like, this is what I want. And uh, so I raised my right hand and I swore back in on the Navy on that mission uh, for five years. And I was like, this, this is the best decision I ever made. Boy, was my wife upset. <laughs> dude, I'm telling you, man, for some reason, for some reason that just gave me chills, <laughs> dude. Like, uh, I don't know. I was just visualizing in my mind, you know, you, you being on that mission and then, and then making that commitment there. I mean, that, that had to have been a powerful moment, man. And yeah, I, I dude, I don't think people understand what that type of life, uh, what it does to a relationship, man. Like, I don't I don't even know how to put it in words because Brooke and I were actually talking about that this morning when we went out on a run together. Um, just talking through the the complexities of that life and when you when you're that not only the op tempo, but the whole fact that you literally have to put your job first. Like that's what I was telling her today when we were talking through it man i was like it's so crazy that back in those back in those days like literally when i was when i was at work um i i i'm ashamed to say but i was not concerned at all about her um sure. e- even though i should have been um well, i completely yeah. neglected it but it, it was i guess it's a necessity and uh i think the only people that can truly understand that um is our wives and then us as we reflect back on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I had this same notion as like, look, I got a steady paycheck coming in. Um, my wife has everything that she's ever wanted. You know, she's got the house, she's got her car, um, got money for food. She's got healthcare. She's protected. And I was like, well, that's, that's my job and my relationship when I was missing the, the total big picture and I didn't realize it until after I got out. Yep. But <clears throat> I was a provider and I felt like, well, I'm providing. So I'm holding up my end of the deal. Like, what, like, why are you so mad at me? I'm giving you everything. Like, I remember like, I was like, you got it all on a plate. Like, 
I'm out there like living in shitholes and getting shot at. It's like you're you got this beautiful, like, what are you so mad at me for? Yeah. Like, I'm just trying to give you everything you want. And, um, but it's, it's the most important thing in relationships to be needed. Like you want to feel like you're needed yeah. or like you're, you're wanted. My wife didn't feel that way. You know, she just felt like she was like this thing on a pedestal that I, I posted her up. Cause I told her, she, you know, I, I, I told her the truth. She's everything to me. And, um, but I was never there. So like with, where, when I was in the squadron, like they were everything to me, you know, I mean, like I, I basically treated that relationship and the squadron with my brothers as if it was my marriage. It was the love, the compassion, the empathy, the, uh, the shoulder to cry on, you know, the guy to fight, you know, when he's out aggravated and he's, he's losing his mind. Like that was my main focus. And now that when I shifted, you know, we spent a whole year on the road and probably get to that. So we really got to learn um, what's more, what's so, what's important in a relationship and how to mend those wounds. There's so many wounds that you get, you don't really talk through, you know, through trauma being in the military. But yeah, the transition out, it's it's so hard, like you said, to explain to people. Like you know, people are like, "Well, you're in the military, nine to five, right?" And you come home, like, like you know, I'm an IT I do the same thing. Like you know, I work for Apple and I got long work hours, and I come home, but my relationship's great. It's like, well, yeah, because. You're not spending that eight hours at home thinking about how you're going to accomplish the next mission That's or right. how you're going to train the guys for your next deployment. You're always thinking of these things yep. and it just deteriorates your, deteriorates your relationship. Yeah. So you get back home dash and, uh, from, from that deployment and you, or, or may, maybe you, you had a chance to let her know that, that, you know, you decided to stay in man and you get back home. And like you said, I'm sure she was, she was probably taken aback because you completely shifted the plan on her, man. And, you know, um, you know, working, working through that, I mean, what was that, what was that next five years like? Um, man, I can't tell you the amount of like internal gratification I got for actually taking that leap. Um, I knew that in my soul, if I didn't try to achieve or do or become the best at what I was doing, and I knew there was an opportunity to do it and I didn't seize it, I would be kicking myself down for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I had an opportunity in front of me to better myself or to, I hate to say it, but to prove my worth. Like I wanted to prove to not, not just, well, to everybody, but also to myself that I am like, I'm the best. Like I can do whatever it is that you want that you put in front of me, I can do it. And uh, my wife knew that about me. She knew like whenever I go rock climbing, I don't care if it's a 5.11 or 5.13 and I've never climbed that route before and I don't even climb at that level. <clears throat> I'm not going to stop until I make it. Like I don't care if I'm cattywapsing, if I'm swinging off into a different route, trying to make it up, I'll make it up. Um, and I learned from that. She knows my drive. She knows like who I am inside and she knew that she stopped me from taking that opportunity that it would destroy me because i had something in front of me to like that to prove greatness right we all want to be great in life and that was my moment where i knew like people are counting on me people believe in me that i can do this so it's game time i gotta show them there's no fail to it there's no ands or buts i have to do this and um i'm so grateful to have her in my life and she supported me a thousand percent Packed up our house in uh, in Imperial Beach into a an, a pod, you know those pods that yep. shoot across country. Then we got into my uh, 1969 Volkswagen bus, and from San Diego we drove it all the way to Virginia Beach and uh, 
uh, the way I trained for great green team was I lived out on my bus and uh, basically did band pushes in the morning. Um, then I'd follow up my runs, uh, rock climbing, backpacking, pull-ups on trees, rock climbing on huge faces and just, just, just getting as lean and as mean as I could. Yep. And I remember getting to green team and just, again, the same scenario of when I started Swick school, the caliber of, of, of men that are at that command that are going through that training, it's, it's like nothing. It's like that. It's like, you can't even read it in a book. Like you have to be in this, in that hosh posh of dudes, like to be like, Holy shit. These guys, like these guys are the real deal. They are the top notch tier one dudes. And got, I remember got, I remember I got to this parking lot and it's three o'clock in the morning. We're getting ready for a screener and guys have like four or five on a, on a bar. The guys are just cleaning it. Ugh, boom. Slam it on the ground. Guys are picking up hundred pound kettlebells and like doing shoulder shrugs and like doing all this stuff. And I'm looking at them like, Oh man, this isn't good. Like, uh, oh man, I'm not ready for this. Yeah, man. And, uh, and for the listeners, green team is basically the it's a it's a whole nother pipeline that that you have to go through in order to serve um, with damn neck. Um, and, yep. and all this stuff is all this, none of this is secret information. You can Google any of this and, and figure this out, but that's what green team is. It's a whole nother, almost, it's not, it's not a whole nother like buds or swick school, but it is another selection process that, that is a, it, it really refines, um, the tools that it takes to be a, a tactician on the highest level. So this is, is that- where you're going through this whole nother selection process. That's what that's what captivated me so much about it, right? It was I've already spent six years in a in a special forces community, and every person I talked to there, like they were set and comfortable being in San Diego. Like they got the house, you know, they got their family, the kids are in school, like they're set, they're comfy, they're comfortable. Yeah. Um, and I told a bunch of guys like, hey, why don't you guys come to the screener with me? Um, guys that I knew were like top top caliber dudes that would just crush. And all of them said it like, I don't want to go through selection again. Like, I don't want to be under that fire. Yeah. Or, I, you know, I've got all these things already set. Like, I don't want to uproot all of this. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, but then why are you here? And that was just my mentality. Is like, mm-hmm. what? There's, there's something. So, and you guys complain so much about being here. And you want to do so much better. And there's a place you can do it. You just don't want to go through another selection phase. Like, what are you afraid of? Failing? And they're like, yeah, like we're made men. We've already done it. I was like, yeah. no, you're not even close. <laughs> well, not even close. <laughs> you, and there again, and there again, you. I think you were totally committed, man. I mean, you were just totally committed to the brotherhood. You were totally committed to your career. And uh, you were front sight focused on being literally the best operator on the highest level that you could possibly reach. And, you know, that's, a, that's awesome. Uh, but there's a price to pay. And you know, you, you you look at the you look at the guys, and same with guys I know uh, in the SEAL teams. You know, the guys that decided that they didn't want to go screen. They were in a place that you were talking about. They were comfortable with the op tempo. They were comfortable with where they were in their career. And um, you know, I think I think it was. I think it's a it's it is definitely a point that people don't want to want to fail. They don't want to go through another selection process, but. You know, I like to think maybe too some of those people may have made the best decision and and chose to stay in that comfortable place uh, in order to, um, I guess, provide a a level environment for their family. You know, 
um, because you know I don't I don't know I don't know a single dude that that operated. You know I, I won't make that comment anyways. I won't go I won't go there. But um, but anyways, so so there's two different looks at it, and I can see where you were just 100 percent committed to to this mission, man. Yep. Um. <clears throat> so you obviously you make it through green team, right? Ooh, made it. <laughs> graduated top of the class. Um, and um, <clears throat> after I graduated, I graduated in February. Um, and then in March, I was deployed. So right wow. after graduation, um, <clears throat> moved my wife out to Virginia and then uh, gave her a kiss and was gone for four months mm. on my first deployment. And uh, that was a temple for about five years. And it was so rough because... We had our first, you know, we had two children in Virginia while I was at the command and she was a single stay at home mom, like with no, with no husband to help. You know, I was always gone. I remember times I'd come home, get home about 6 PM. I was so thankful. I had dinner on the table. She probably slaved all day on, I remember sticking my fork in the food and my phone would go off at 45 minutes to make it back to work. And I was deployed again. I didn't even get to eat. And I remember kissing my, my oldest, uh, he's five now. He's one years old. He's kissing him on the head, kissed my wife goodbye. She's like, you're leaving again. I said, yeah, I gotta go. And it was for five years. It was like that. It's just, you're always gone. But the missions that I got to do and the uh, impact that we got to make, um, in the uh, overseas was tremendous for me. Like, the amount of pride, the amount of, I always wanted to be needed. You know, I wanted to prove myself, but I more so I wanted to help. I want to feel like I was a part of something where people could rely on me and I could get the job done. Yep. You know, like I want to be a part of that. And I felt like that at the command, not like I did at the other command, but I felt like that at this command. And uh, <clears throat> we started to mend through, like we realized, especially after having our second kid, I'll never forget. I took her on a date night. My mom was, my mom flew in and she'd take care of the kids. And Dash was three and Jax was one. And we're at this, I think it was like a whiskey barrel kitchen or something. It had some cheeseburgers in front of us. She just started bawling, bawling her eyes out. And I sit there and I start like tearing up. I was like, what's wrong? And she, and she just vented everything to me. I felt like such a horrible person. Because mm-hmm. I hear I had the person that I love, the person that I cherish. Take, you know, she's my teammate. She's everything. Well, I'm not there for her. Yeah. And uh, it just devastated me. And from there, we started doing marriage counseling. Um, you know, I did, I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to invest into her that she knows that she's everything to me. And it was a big switch, right? So mm-hmm. the whole team gear, my gear, me mentality, I had to, I put my wife in the middle. There it was team gear, family, then it was my gear then it was me. Yep. And I made sure after every time I got back from an, a training mission, I called her or text her. And I was always, I, I tried to bring her into the fold more so rather than push her away. And it really helped us out. And uh, thankfully, right before um, I got through some big hurdles in my life, which was cancer. Um, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, well, all right, man. <laughs> I, I got. All right. I got to hear first. Did did we did we skip over the portion? Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> so did did we? I I, I want to hear the cancer story definitely, and I want to hear the story of. Uh, I want to hear your testimony, basically. Sure. So my testimony is, is uh, 2015, I was off the coast of the Indian, Indian Ocean, and uh, my roommate, um, 
my buddy Adam, he was a team leader. He was studying what's called apologetics. Yeah, apologetics uh, is a study of, of basically why. It's like the theology of Christianity. It kind of breaks down all the different um, laws and structures and fundamentals, and it kind of asks the deeper questions just to have an understand, like a deeper understanding of the meaning of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it studies all religions. It studies Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Catholicism. It studies all these different religions, but it really tries to emphasize why Christ is the one. But it doesn't. It's not persuasive. It's not in your face. Um, and a very, good, a very influential teacher of mine that I listened to religiously was Ravi Zacharias. Um, <clears throat> but my roommate, his name was Adam. I'm sitting there in his room, and there's nothing going on for months, man. We're bored, and I'm covered in Hindu tattoos because uh, my my foster family is Chinese and Thai, Chinese, Japanese, and Thai. So they're Buddhist. And this was so confusing to me. So he's asking me about my religion. He's asking me, like, why are you Buddhist? And I was telling him, oh, my family's Buddhist, the ones who adopted me. And he's like, oh, that's awesome. And it was strange for me to hear a Christian tell me that. Like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, but he's like, well, tell me more. Like, what are these Buddha gods? Like, what do they do? Like, what do they stand for? And he's really intrigued about my belief or my family's belief. Mm-hmm. And the more he started asking me, the more I realized I didn't know anything about my religion nothing it was all uh passed down of things i saw my my parents do and i want to show them respects and want to be a part of the fold so i followed and i you know i wasn't going to disrespect their culture i wasn't going to disrespect their traditions um i just adopted them as my own and when he told me that he's like wow it's really interesting and the thing that got me was he asked me like how does that make you feel he's like how do you feel about that like do you stand solid on your foundation of your beliefs or like, is it, is it rocky? Like he's like, one day, do you think you'll be a Muslim? And I was like, no, like, why would I be a Muslim? Nothing against Muslims. So like, but why would I be a Muslim? He's like, well, if he's like, if you were raised in a Muslim family, would you be Muslim? Like, yeah, probably. He's like, well, why? I was like, well, that's just what they do. He's like, but more importantly, like, what, what about you? Like, you as a person, like, why do you believe what you believe? And he didn't, and he didn't throw Christianity. Like he wasn't like, you should read this, you know, or yeah. here's Jesus and here's the gospel. He just told me like, man, to man, he's like, you really should have a strong foundation of your beliefs of what you believe. And I appreciated that. So what did I do is I just started digging deep into Buddhism as deep as I could go. Yeah. And the more I dug into it, the more frustrated I got because I'd call my mom or, or call my foster, you know, my adopted dad and ask him questions. And what was, what was interesting was, all the Buddhas and gods that they worship, like they had them up on these on these um, little altars and they'd feed them food and water and all this stuff and burning incense and praying for hour to hour a day. It's like <clears throat> all those Buddhas were Hindu. They were Hindu Buddhas or, or Hindu deities. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them were Buddhist. Like they're not Buddhas. So like Buddha is, is, uh, is actually, come, it comes from like the Japanese and Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. Like they're kind of meshed. Um, but Buddhism is it's all self awareness, self um like getting rid of everything, but it, it's it's nirvana is like you have the ability to reach this higher form of enlightenment through your own self and nothing else. And the only way to get there is to rid yourself of everything. And like when I looked at it, I was like, okay, that's Buddhism. 
say, well, what is Hinduism? And Hinduism is the worships of deities and gods to, um, to protect you and bless your life, right? Like there's so many of them. There's thousands. Yeah. And uh, so when I, I called my parents up again. I was like, hey, it's like, I think you guys are actually Hindu. Like, I think you're confused. And they're getting so upset. I mean, like, what? You always ask all these questions. You know, it, it reminds them. Um, oh, gosh, what's his name? Is it Matthew? Matthew's always asking questions in the Bible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and doubting Thomas, even though he always doubts, he always asks these deep questions yeah. of why and what. And, uh, but anyway, they're like, you always ask all these questions. Don't be disrespectful. It's like, whoa, not being disrespectful. It's like, I'm covered in these Hindu gods, right? And I'm trying to figure it out. I was like, these are Hindu gods, but we are Buddhists. And like, I told them a whole thing about Buddhism. I gave them a whole like I sending my dad all these PDF files that I'm bringing on deployment. And he's like, yeah, I get it. He's like, at the end of the day, it comes down to what, uh, what makes you happy. That's what he told me. He's like, what makes you happy? And that could be your belief. And I was like, no, it can't. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And I was, and then uh, of course I'm starting to read into Christianity and other religions. And I was like, there's only one guy who's ever claimed to be the truth and the light. There's only one. There's only one guy who took all the responsibilities that all the other gods said they'd you know, bless other people's life. He took all the authority to himself and then died on the cross. There's only one. And I remember reading this article from Gandhi. And Gandhi was like, the thing I love about the Bible or the thing I appreciate the most about Jesus was he was a man of his word. And he actually stood up for what he like. He went through the fire. He claimed that he was the, the truth and the life and, and the light of the world. And he died on the cross. No other prophet, like no, no other religion has that kind of guy who took that responsibility upon himself and lived it. Like just, this is me. Yep. And man, it got so much, it got so much deeper. But I came home from that deployment with a ton of conflicts. Um, about to have my first son, uh, Dash Jr. And just just wondering like, why, like, why, why do, why do I practice this? Why do I do this? Why do I have these tattoos? I'm about to have, have a son born into this world. How am I going to raise him? Right. Am I going to raise him to, to just follow the traditions that I have Yeah, because that's how I am. Or I'm going to raise him to, on, a, on a foundation where he can build it upon himself to find out these answers, you know? And I'll never forget it. It was, there was three events that happened where, you know, call it superstition or call it a, divine intervention or whatever you want might want. But um, I'm, I'm happy to share this, te- this testimony with people whether they believe it or not. But my wife will vouch for it. Her sisters will vouch for it. Like I had so many people that actually witnessed what happened mm-hmm. that is undeniable what the Lord did. And <clears throat> it all started in the hot tub one night. I was on my deck in Chesapeake. And I was in the hot tub. And, you know, it was crazy. I just all of a sudden got filled with rage. Like, deep within my sternum like this boiling that just started happening and everything in my past all the hurt all the pain all the agony uh of my entire life just started coming coming to fruition and and that whole uh, in the beginning of this podcast the whining came in really hard like why did i have to go through this like why would you treat me this way why would you forsaken me like why would you Mm -hmm. leave me and abandon me and let me starve. Why would you let me like wither and cold? And why would you let me hear my mother get raped? And like, why would you put me in all these situations? Like, why? Just boiling, right? Just fuming. And I remember sitting in the hot tub, staring at the stars and just pissed. Like, no, this isn't right. He's like, you're going to like, 
like take this away. Yeah. If you're truly God, if you're, if you're God and you're the all high and mighty, like take this away. Like this is poison. This is toxic. What I have in my body. And I remember telling him, I was like, and you did this to me and I'm late. And I got out of the hot tub and like, dude, I mean, I'm, I'm like tense. I don't know what came over me, but all of a sudden I'm laying on the deck with my back on the deck and my, you know, staring up at the stars. And is as if someone put their hands on my shoulders and pushed me down on the deck gently, not like I was being like held down, but like, mm-hmm. like a comforting push and everything was gone. Everything was gone. All the pain, all the, all the suffering, all the, all the anguish, all the resentment was gone. And it just felt like this, this chills. I mean, I'm getting them now, like all the hairs on my, on my hands just stand, on my arms are standing up. Yeah. And just started crying, like all these tears were coming out of my eyes. And I, I was like, what is this? And the Lord put it, like, I couldn't hear this. It wasn't like someone was speaking on a microphone or anything, but I felt this voice come up from inside and just like resonate in my head. <clears throat> and it, it was weird. It was like having a flashback of my previous, you know, childhood. And it was like a flashback to my childhood to like where I am now. Childhood to where I'm at now. And, he, and the Lord basically put it on my heart. He's like, if you weren't the salt and light as a child in that darkness where I put you, like think about all the people that are going to see where you are now that hurt you, that abandoned you, that treat you so bad. And think about how they're going to see you now. Like you were there for a reason. You were there to be that light. Yep. You were there to show them their actions were wrong. You were there to stand up for righteousness, even though you didn't know it. Yep. But, you were, but you were always my child. And I knew what you're going to stand for. I knew how I made your heart. I knew the soul that I put in you and I knew who you were going to become. And that's why I did it. And then he put on to, and he knows how my mind is. He said, how would it be if I didn't put you there? Think about all those kids that you stood in line with that were in that fight club and all the drug lords that watch you stand up and, and do these actions and stand up for righteousness. Those little ripples make big waves and you don't get to see it. He's like, but I do. He's like, you were there for a reason. You've always wanted to be useful. You've always wanted to be um, needed. He's like, I needed you. And now look where you're at. He's like, I've, I've never left your side. Yep. I've never abandoned you. I've always been there for you. And that was a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, you are God. Like you are always there. And I could, I could all, my perspective of everything shifted. Even though I had a positive perspective in my life and I had <clears throat> understanding uh, and empathy for everybody. I was still pissed. It was still super shitty. You don't treat kids that way. You don't yeah. raise them that way. But it didn't let, I didn't let that change who I, you know, I, was, I want to ultimately become. I want to be a good person. Like I want to be positive. Um, the hate was still there. But once I saw, once you look at things in a heavenly perspective and you, you try to understand, you never will, but you try to look at how God's working it and not how you're working it. You try to look at his timeline and not your timeline, you get amazed. You just get blown away at his at his mighty and his grace. You're like, wow, I could never orchestrate something like that. A hundred percent, brother. And and I think that I, I've came to the same realization in my life to where, you know, you had that moment where you look back and you realize, holy smokes, I was on the path the whole time. Like <laughs> I've been on the path the entire time. And it, that's a, that's a huge realization, and I and and likewise, brother. When I got when I got saved, man, I got it all in one shot, dude. And I wish, like, 
when you get when you when you get hit with that, like I the one of the one of my favorite favorite truths that is spoken in God's word is that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Whom Jesus sets free is free indeed. It is the only true and complete sense of freedom that is available to us as human beings. And you know, I got I got set free similar not not exactly the same not not dealing with the same things but i woke up the next morning dude and and i didn't want to watch porn i didn't want to cuss i didn't dude i wanted to uh i i, I was and, and it wasn't from my own power like i just sure. it was just like i was just i was truly truly born again i'm not saying yeah. this like a like a baptist preacher would say it i'm saying this from a true place of experience it was like I was truly born again. Um, so that's that is that story. That portion of your testimony resonates so much with me, and uh, and I and I wish that everybody would get it the way we got it, man. Because it's just it's like there's no process to it. It's just like it hits you like a ton of bricks, dude, and then you're 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 just rocking and rolling. So. The, the, the mind-boggling um, thought of the, the whole matter is, is if, to understand that you were specifically chosen by, by the Lord. Like when I look at the vastness of space, when I look at the, you know, the multitudes of people and the countries that we've been to and, and seen the things that we've seen, and to know that he's singled me out personally and chose me and saved me yep. out of everything. It blows my mind. Like I'm so minuscule, I'm so tiny, and you know, like play such a like in my in in the big scheme of things. Like even being a tier one operator, like the things we did are so minute. Like little course, like little course changes in history, right? Yeah. Like little tweaks here and there, not large ones, but little ones. And then he comes in and just he's always like he you're his. You can't run away from it. And it's the greatest. It's the greatest feeling in the world. But uh, I will say the most important thing is if you're having trouble, like wondering where you are, you are in your walk or, or if you want to follow Jesus or if he's the truth and you're contemplating it, just ask him. And I challenge, I've challenged all my friends. People always like, oh, you drank the, you drank the Kool-Aid. And I was like, like dude, I was like, I like ask, like I dare you, like I dare you ask him, like ask him to prove himself, like ask him into your heart. And watch what happens. Watch the change. You'll be on this this river that's running this rapid path, and boom, it'll take you ninety yep. degrees off. Yep, it's amazing. Yep, and that's uh, you know that's that's another principle in 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 God's word, and God's word is truth. And it's uh you know ask and and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. And but but it implies initiative. And you know the problem the problem I think the biggest challenge with Getting down uh, and and asking Jesus to reveal Himself to you that takes humility, man. Like it, it, it takes you have to let go of your pride first to be able to come, uh, not come before Jesus even before you you even believe believe have the ability to believe in Him. You you've got to humble yourself, let go of your pride, 
and then just speak those words out loud. And, and like you said, Dash, ask him. And if you start seeking, he's going to open the door and reveal himself to you. But it's got to come from a pure heart, and you got to at least get through that. That I think pride is the number one thing that keeps people from taking that step. Even though it sounds like such an easy step to take, to just ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Ask for that measure of faith. The Bible says God gives every man a measure of faith. See, everything starts with him. The fact, the fact that you and I can believe in Jesus, the fact that we can believe in him, that's not a decision that we made. He gave us a measure of faith in order to believe in him. And um, anyways, that's my, that's my, that, I think that's the main obstacle that those people you're talking about and those people that you are challenging, just ask. I think that's the main obstacle that stands between them and, and asking that question and then receiving that revelation is just human pride, man. I remember so. that my, my biggest conflict was, was I didn't need a savior. Like why, why did I need someone to stand up for me? And, and for my, like, I didn't understand the whole <clears throat> say this prayer and get baptized and receive the Holy spirit. Yeah. Uh, I remember looking at it like, but, but I mean, for what, like, what's the, what's the big point? Like if I go up to heaven, I was, a, I'm a good man. It's almost like, like self-righteousness. Yeah. It, it is. It, and I, was, I felt the same man. thing. I, I've done all these things in my life that I've always done it for the benefit of others. Uh, very selfless. You know, I'm like, I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. Like, I don't need someone to stand up for me on my, my iniquities and the things I'll gladly stand up and admit I'm wrong or the things that I'm doing wrong. I have no problem with that. I got, you know, like what's this whole point. And then I remember like feeling cheated um, by, by, uh, by going to church from all the people that I was meeting who was like, you know, I'm a saved man. And, and, you know, I got Jesus in my heart and just, just seeing them like, you know, I'm, I'm not pointing fingers, but seeing people doing things, and I'm guilty of it too, but doing things that don't replicate the the, the kingdom or, or, G, or Jesus's qualities that he speaks about in the Bible. And I remember asking somebody about like being saved. It's like, so you mean to tell me that like you got baptized in this water and you said this prayer and you asked the Lord in your heart and now everything's good? And he's, and he's like, yeah, that's it, man. And I was like, well, that don't make no sense. Yeah. Like logically, like if you really think about it, you mean to tell me 2000 years ago, this guy came, from, you know, was, was sent to earth, uh, was God's son, died on the cross uh, for the sins of everybody for eternity. And all you have to do is say, oh yeah, I believe in you. And you can do whatever you want, but any sins, but as long as you got, you believe in Jesus, you get up to heaven. He's like, look, you're an awful person. You were really bad. He's like, I know you believe in me. So here you go. Yeah. And um, what, what destroyed me, absolutely destroyed me was uh, I was reading the, uh, the parable son. Um, and I've never saw it in this, this perspective of, you know, there's this two, there's a, uh, the eldest son and the younger son and the younger son wants all of his riches now from the father and he wants it all. And, you know, father's like no it's not time and the brother's like don't give it to him he's just going to squander all his money and um and he's going to waste it all and the father's like but it's his like what, what i'm going to give it and he gave it to him and he goes out and he squanders on he's laying in a swine pit and he's got nothing and he's like well if i go back and work for my father at least things will be good and i understand 
understood that perspective of it. I understand that, you know, we mess up in our lives and, the, you know, Jesus stands there to receive us. But there's two parts that captivated me so much was one that the, that in the parable, uh, the father of the house ran to his son, the one who squandered all his riches, ran to him and embraced him. Right? I've never had a dad, first off. I've, I've never had someone like run to me, right, with so much love and compassion to, to like that welcome home embrace. I remember thinking about like, well, that's really interesting. Like thinking, of, and again, this is the whole building of the heavenly perspective of, of the kingdom's perspective, not Maya's perspective, but how he operates. Yep. And he runs to us. Like he runs with open arms. He's head over heels. All the angels rejoice, you know, at the saving, at the saving of, of a soul. But the second part that, dest- that destroyed me was the eldest son who had all the riches of the father, who stood next to the father. And saw his younger brother squander, and he was telling his father, "Why would you welcome him back?" He's like, "You've seen what he's done." He's like, "But why would you do that?" And then the eldest son leaves, right? He leaves. They're having this huge feast, right? They have the the calf that they that they the the, the young calf the with a it was a uh, highly resound like meat for the t- for their time. Yeah. And in order to use it, the fattened calf, right? It was like a a big ceremony. And the eldest brother's like, "Why would you give it to him?" Like. He was, he wasted everything of ours, yet, yet you give him everything. And if you think about the eldest son, you think about his perspective, this is what, this is what changed my heart is so many times we spend so much time of thinking about all the things of heaven and all the, the beauties and wonders that heaven's going to provide and the streets laden in gold and our new bodies and no pain and you know rejoice and 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 love and everything that that heaven you know has but so it's so easy to forget what's the main focus there there's jesus it's the man who stands there like would you want all the things of heaven like the eldest son had like he has all the riches and he has the father but he doesn't want the father like he wants all the things that he has he doesn't want to sacrifice the the fat calf because it should be for a different time he doesn't want to give the, the squanders. He doesn't want to take off his ring and give it to his brother because his brother already squandered it because he wants all the things of heaven the way, it's, the way he thinks it's supposed to be, not the way the father thinks it's supposed to be. Yeah. And when I thought about that, I was like, wow. So this really changed my perspective on not so much wanting to get into heaven because that's, what my, that's where my, my thought process was. How, if heaven is the ultimate goal, then how do I get there? All I have to do is say this prayer and get saved by Jesus, and now I'm in heaven. Okay, mission accomplished. Well, with that perspective, you want all the things that the kingdom provides, but not the king. And when you when you go that way, you miss what I I personally believe you miss one of the most important teachings that Jesus has is a relationship with Him. Like, there's only one reason you make it into heaven, and that's because Jesus knows you, and you know Him. And he's like, many will call upon my name at the day, but I will say to them, you know, you know, you've prophesied in my name, you've healed the sick, you've placed hands on the lepers, but depart from me, I never knew you. But why would he say something like that? And, and you know, there's that, that one passage that's, that's written in Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that one passage, like, it, it's so tiny and minuscule, but it's so strong and impactful to realize, like, where, or where you stand with, with the Lord. It's yep. so important to have a relationship with him. It really is. And it doesn't mean like, you know, you're all huggy and kissy with the dude uh, who came to save you. I mean, it really, when you have a relationship with him, you really understand like he's Abba the Father. 
He's, he's the man who protects you and guides you and, and nourishes you. You know, of course you're going to love him. Like, yep. of course you're going to try to listen to him. You know what I mean? He, and, long, long, but no, man. And he's, he, you're exactly right. When you're in that relationship, brother, it's like you, you come to that realization that he is the source of, of all things. He, he is the beginning of all wisdom. He is the source of all understanding. He is the one thing that sustains you as your life hangs on this little thread, uh, day to day. Um, and, and He's, that's the way I feel every day in my life, man. When you're, when you reach that, when, when you reach that point, uh, in, in that relationship, when you seek that relationship with him, you earnestly seek it. You genuinely seek it again. It starts with your, it starts with initiative and then he provides that. Um, it's like, there's not a day that goes by that you don't feel his presence and you don't feel his calling upon your life and it is the most it is the most freedom like you, you that you can sense or or even imagine it's true just true freedom and and a true stance of understanding and and wisdom and and that's all the things you get from that relationship so i agree you have to seek that relationship which is not not just about saying a prayer and being baptized and and kind of the re- religious aspects of it. it. It is a true relationship with a loving Father who created you and who created everything around you. And yeah. I also think, Dash, something been on my heart a lot lately, man, is is uh, we as as believers in Christ or, or even people in general that may not uh, believe the same way we believe uh, but, but are seeking some sort of uh, belief in a higher power, they look too much for a supernatural sign. Um, and, and so we are actually in, in this place that we live, nature, in this world that we live in, we are surrounded. This is all a supernatural creation. We are surrounded. Yeah, yeah, man, we are surrounded by supernatural elements and laws, and, and, and the complexity of it is just, we. it, it cannot be replicated. And so... You know, you don't have to, you don't have to have that moment where where the the sky splits and a dove descends upon you, and it's like all of a sudden everything's clear. Like, no, that's not that's not the way it works. See, God will speak to you through the natural because he it, that is His creation, and uh, he's you're, he's you're done that so son. many times. Just just as a as a child who looks up to his father, the child knows the father's voice, and the child knows like when the father is saying something or, or commanding something like just with my, with my children, they know, they know everything I put in front of them is, is for them. They, they know how I'm going to raise them up. They, they understand what's right and what's wrong, what not to do. Well, the God's God, I, you know, I believe that he operates the same way and that, and he knows how he needs to speak to you. He speaks to, he speaks on, on multiple different ways. Like for me, I love numbers. Like I'm a huge numbers mm-hmm. guy. Uh, probably why I'm, I'm addicted to navigation, but, I love numbers and I always saw the Lord working in my life in a comical way where he's putting numbers in front of me that made me laugh. He'd always put like a, like the same numbers in front of me, like one, one, one or three, three, three or 1212 and license plates that would have the same number while I'm thinking something and meditating on the Lord. And I'm asking a question like, is this a confirmation? Like, I, you know, should I do this in my life or should I move my family here? And I see something like three, three, three 
or four four four. I'm like, that's kind of funny. Like, but I know that's how my father works with yep. me. I know that's that's and there's times he speaks in my heart where I can I can hear his breath into into my consciousness and I know what he's speaking is is true because it is good. Right. And that's and that's how you can challenge all things. And you can also relate it to scripture. If it bounces off of scripture and it and it works good in your life, then it has to be from the Lord. There's no way it can be from the enemy. I mean, the enemy can infiltrate your dreams and kind of coerce the way you you go about your life. But ultimately, if your conscience and your focus is on the Lord, the enemy has no power. But one thing that uh, that really uh, to drive home that perspective of relationship with with Jesus is um, not just the parable son, but thinking of the three guys on the cross, right? You had the two thieves and you had Jesus. And you had one thief on the cross who said, "If you were, if you were the Lord, the Redeemer, the Savior, why don't you just work, your, you know, work your uh, your miracles and save us?" Yeah. Well, the well, the second uh, thief repented and said, "You are the Lord." And Jesus said to that second man, "Like great is your reward in heaven." Like, like when you think about that perspective, those men were hanging on the cross, dying, but one man wanted all the things and the saving grace of the Lord that he could provide, but wanted nothing of him. Yeah. Well, the other one acknowledged everything that who he was and cherished it and got everything that the Lord wanted to give to him. It's, it's really powerful. I mean, it can get so deep. Oh, it is brother. I mean, we could, we could have done an <laughs> entire podcast just on this and not talked about any of the rest of your stories, dude. 100%. I mean, none of it's important. Uh, Only Jesus. I'm but. telling you, brother. I mean, so before, uh, and I want to be, I mean, I want to be, if you got to go, Dash, you let me know, man. But I just, oh, I really, I, I was, I'm really looking forward to, to releasing this to our, our um, audience, man. So before we move into the time, you know, the, the whole, um, I guess, story of you and, and cancer, uh, is there anything else that you want to share about your testimony, man? Um. No, I think that pretty much sums it up. Roger that. Yeah, this I don't think I can get any better than that. <laughs> Roger that, man. And I and I imagine, I mean, I, your faith has got to be intermingled with uh, with these um, these this next battle that we talk about too. I mean, so I want to dig into that, and you yeah. tell me, you tell me um, if you could just walk me through that story in whatever way that you want when you did, you know, get that diagnosis with cancer and how that affected you and your family and. And uh, whatever you want to share about that, man, because I've never heard the story, the full version of the story. I just know little bits and pieces, you know? Yeah. Um, so the next part of my story is 2017. Um, <clears throat> we, were, uh, we were getting ready to go on our deployment cycle. So what that means is all our bags are packed in ISUs and all our gear is there. We're leaving in a week. Um, and... Uh, we have to go over our certs, our qualifications to go on deployment to make sure everything's in line. And one thing that I didn't have, you know, my ducks in a row was called HAPS. My HAPS card was going to expire. And that stands for um, High Altitude Parachute um, Certification. Um, basically, it puts you in like a, a chamber. They simulate the forms of hypoxia and low oxygen um, and make sure you can operate at a capacity where you can understand what's going on with your body, your body and your physiology. Well, I had to do that again. You have to do it every five years. And uh, so my, my, uh, my, uh, my SOCOM, my medic, uh, came up to me. He's like, hey, your dink on your haps. He's like, all you got to do is go get your chest x-rays. 
Um, and then we'll deploy while we're overseas. We'll say, you know, we'll show them the x-rays and just say, hey, we haven't completed it because the next course is you weren't able to make it. It's like, all right, easy enough. I'll go get my x-rays. I go down and get my x-rays. The guy snaps a couple shots and he looks at it. And he's, not, of course, he's not, a, uh, he's not certified to read the scans or whatever. But he, I remember he looked at it and then uh, I was like, oh, I'm done. He's like, he's like, let me take a couple more. And he took, and I was like, oh, okay. So I got, took some deep breaths. And I, uh, I got to remind you, like I'm running five and a half minute miles. Like I'm running not as much as you are, but I'm at least at a minimum, I'm running 13 miles a week yeah. at least. And that, that for me, it just, that I could data, data dump all my stress. I could run, I could feel the breeze, hear the quiet. Like that was like my go-to and I was a runner. Like I lived up to my name yep. and uh, everyone knew that they're like, like dash always runs. I never smoked. Um, and uh, when, he, when I look back at him, he had this, this face, like this concerned face on him. And I remember it was this little, it was this little Asian dude, not to say all Asians are little, well, I'm Asian, so I can say that, <laughs> but um, this little Asian dude. And uh, he's looking at my scans. He's like, I'm not, cer- I'm not certified to like, look at this. He's like, but, it just looks different to me. I was like, all right, cool. And I'm thinking in my head, it's like, yeah, it's probably the biggest lungs you've ever seen because I'm a stud. Yeah. And uh, the, <clears throat> so I go home and the very next day I come to work and I get there at about nine to go do my self PT. I'm doing my run. I did a couple of, of lifts and I get up to, uh, to the locker room, to take a shower. And my team leader is walking by and he stops. He's like, yeah, he's like, you got to get in this right now. I was like, dang it, what did I do? It's like, I probably messed up. I get in the office and I got a command master chief. I got um, uh, a couple of, of uh, OICs there. And I got the command, uh, the command surgeon and well, the corpsman there. It was like a whole room of wow. people. And I'm sweaty. I'm sweaty. I'm in my PT gear. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? And they're, they're like, look, um, we don't think you're going to come on this deployment. And I was like, why? It's like, well, what's going on? Like, what's wrong? And they're like, well, we found on your x-rays, they found some, um, some, uh, they didn't say, they didn't call it tumors. They said they found some, uh, I don't know, some abnormalities is what mm-hmm. it was. They found some abnormalities in my chest cavity. And he's like, and you gotta go get, uh, you gotta go get second recommendations and you gotta do this and that. It was like my lungs. So like, what was wrong with my lungs? Like, what did you guys see? And basically, I had three massive tumors on my lower middle lobe. So for your viewers, in your lungs, you have two lungs. And your right side, you have three compartments in your right side. And you have, am I doing that right? Two compartments on the left. You have five overall compartments. And uh, so two compartments of my right lung um, had these growths on them. And uh, boy, that that started a whole train of, Dude, I remember once I got the news, I walked in that room. It wasn't it wasn't any later than like ten thirty in the morning, and you know I'm a strong man of faith, strong man for the Lord. Great relationship with him. My family's never been better. Uh, we're plugged into a church, got a great community going. And I got I walked out of that that office and I went straight to the, we had a huge climbing wall at the command, and I put my harness on. I climbed to the top of the wall and I'm looking over Virginia Beach and looking at the ocean. I don't even know what's going on, right? I don't know if I have cancer. Yeah. I just know that they found something. And I just, just fear, just tons of fear, just in, enveloping my whole body. And in a blink of an eye, I'm, I'm thinking of like my kids getting raised without a dad. You know, I'm thinking of like 
is my my life insurance and plan for my 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 wife like is that enough going to be to pay off the mortgage or the house like uh, is everyone going to be set like i'm already thinking about dying right but i'm not even dead yeah. uh, but and i don't even know what i have in here and uh, <clears throat> so i'm stressed dude i'm so stressed so the ver- that very same day by um one o'clock i'm at portsmouth and uh i meet the lung specialist and the lung specialist he calms me down like so well he's like listen he's like i i'm a born and raised guy from san diego like i've been in california my whole life he's like i know you guys train you guys blow up stuff and um down at pendleton he's like but all that soil has fungus in it and every certain region in the country has different types of fungus he's like a lot of times that fungus will get in your lungs and they'll grow like this little spore and your body will kind of fight it and encapsulate it and it just stays there he's like i've got four I got four of these things in my lungs. I was like, oh, was like, well, that makes sense. Like yeah. I, I blew a bunch of stuff up in San Diego. I was like, well, cool, man. I was like, he's like, you're too young. You're 29 years old. There's, there's no way he's, and he told me, like, there's no way this is cancer. No like, you don't smoke. You're in great physical condition. Um, so because of all these things, X, Y, and Z, I was on a very low risk, right? Very mm-hmm. low risk. I'm like, sweet. He's like, but I got to do some tests. So he shoves this camera up my nose into my right lung cavity and then that that camera also has a claw on it he's just clawing at these tumors and grabbing them and like taking off samples and i'm watching the whole thing on the camera i'm like like laughing like whoa that's creepy that's my lung every time i take a breath you can see it expand wow that's nuts (laughs) and um so i come home that day i was like i'm telling my wife i was like look they found some stuff but you know the lung specialist told me like i'm in good i'm in good hands I'm a super low risk for cancer. My wife's like, there's no way this is cancer. Like you, you don't, you, there's no way you have cancer. You run every day. You're, just, you're great health, you eat healthy, don't smoke. I was like, yeah, it's like, I know I'm fine. And uh, I get called back to Portsmouth on Monday and the, uh, the thoracic surgeon that got all the samples, it came back inconclusive. He had no idea what they were. So now I go and see a thoracic surgeon and the thoracic surgeon says, before I cut you open, I want you to do what's called a needle biopsy, where a CT guided needle biopsy, where they lay you down on a, on a, in a CT scanner and they get this long ass needle, right? I'm talking long. And uh, I want to say it was a 16 or 14 gauge. So that's fat. It's a fat needle. And they go in through the back and they jam this needle in. And here's where it gets super trippy, right? So I'm laying on this table and I can handle like a decent amount of pain. I'm not, not so much of a wuss. But I remember laying there and he's, I can feel him drive. I feel his pressure. It's kind of, it's kind of nagging and he stops and he's like, all right, we're in place. And I'm like, Oh, sweet. Thank God it's over. Right. Like that sucked. He's like, now what I need you to do is I have the needle placed right on the outside of your lung where the, where one of the tumors is. And I need you to take a deep breath and inflate your lung to push the needle into your lung cavity so that I can get a sample of the tumor. He's like, I can't push this into your lung mm-hmm. because your lung's going to quiver and it's going to spasm out and I'm going to miss. But if you breathe into it and keep breathing, it'll be a straight guided punch and I can get the sample. I was like, yeah, I mean, I'll take a deep breath. And I remember doing it like a, like an arrogant asshole, but like, yeah, I'll take a deep breath. Yeah. And I went and I took this big breath and I, I had a pain I've never felt that I felt this extreme sharpness like in my i actually felt my lung being punctured yeah that sharpness was a big needle 
(laughs) (laughs) I felt it, man. And right as I felt, right as I felt it, all my air was like, Ooh, like I could, I couldn't inhale into it. I was like, Ooh, he's like, I know. He's like, I know it's going to hurt. He's like, your lung doesn't actually have nerves on it. He's like, but inside of your lung is where you can actually have nerve, nerve receptors. Yeah. So you're going to have to punch through that outer wall. And he's like, it's going to suck. Long story short, you did about 10 punches. I did about 10 of these breaths mm. and he could never get it. And I was laying on his table and I started coughing blood onto my table. And, you know, I have a, I have like an anesthesiologist, like forcing all these drugs in me and she's looking at me and I have blood just pouring out of my mouth. And I'm talking to the doc, like, did you get it? Did you get it? And she's like, I think we have to stop. Like we're done here. Yeah. And, uh, and the doc's like, look, I tried my best. He's like, I can't get a sample. And I was like, doc, I'm spitting blood on the table. I've got three tumors in my lung. It's like, you bought, you got to get something. Yeah. He's like, you might, I, I'm already jacked up. I'm bleeding. It's like, we're all, you've already done the damage. We've done the damage together. It's like, just get in there. You know, just like how we stick each other with IVs. You're going to yeah. miss a vein. Just do it, man. Just get it. She tries a couple more times. And I think, I don't know this for a fact to this day, but I think he kind of cold-heartedly lied. He's like, okay, we're good. And uh, bandaged me back up. And so I've got all these punctures in my lung and all of a sudden I started getting like this pneumothorax where like my chest cavity started filling up with the air and my lung wasn't able to inflate yep. because I had all these punctures in my lung. So I had all this air leaking into my cavity. So I had a tension pneumothorax. So I go back to the hospital the next day having trouble breathing and uh, my thoracic surgeon tells me, well, the next option is I have to crack or cut you open. So I have an incision that comes just under my nipple line, it goes all the way across to my back. He's like, I have to cut you open, uh, basically crack uh, one of your ribs to get in my tool, and I'm going to cut the tumors, and I'm going to take them out. He's like, I guarantee you I'll get the tumor. He's like, cool. He's like, but the uh, here's the thing. He's like, you're probably going to be under for about eight hours. He's like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut the tumor off. I'm going to send it down to a lab while you're under, while you're under anesthesia. And the lab will be able to tell me if it's malignant or not, if it's cancer. Yeah. So if it's cancer, we'll remove your lung. And if it's not cancer, we'll sew you back up and you'll be good to go. And I was like, well, that's some pretty good odds, I think. And you know, I'm still thinking about what the lung specialist said. Like, there's no way it's cancer, mm-hmm. some type of fungus or virus or something. I was like, I don't want to mess around with this thing. Like, I got kids. I don't want, if it is cancer, I don't want to miss it. Because I like, just let's do it. And, uh, I can send you all these pictures um, if you want to do like captivating posts, but I have all the pictures of pre-op and post-op and me with gators on walking to the ICU with chest tubes in and just trying to you know, have fun as much fun as uh, with it as I could. Yeah. Like I'm walking around the ICU butt naked just to give the nurses a show. Like <laughs> it's just the type of dude I was, but I remember going under and then waking up in the, in the, in a holding room right after surgery. And in this room, there must have been six or seven other dudes that just came out of surgery. And they were screaming and it was like, oh, like this moaning agony pain. I don't know what kind of time of surgery they had. And I woke up and I was like, did they take my lung out? And I'm trying to breathe. You have this big chest tube in me. I got a penis catheter in. You know, I've got an oxygen mask on. I'm like, mm-hmm. it's like, okay. Like I'm breathing. And I'm freaking out. The nurse comes by and she's like, on one scale, one to 10, how much pain are you in? And I took, a, I took another breath and it just hit me like 10 out of 10, like highest pain scale I've ever been in. I was like, dude, I hurt bad. And she's like, well, yeah, we broke your rib and 
you know, cut you across your entire thoracic cavity. So all your intercostal muscles are destroyed. And I was like, yeah. So she loads me up with dilated and, and uh, feel a little bit better. But I kept asking her like, do I have my lung? Did you guys cut my lung out? Yeah. And she's like, I'm not the doctor, so I can't tell you. So I get wheeled into the ICU and uh, my doctor comes in. He's like, so I got good news. I got bad news. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> he said, the good news is we got the samples. Um, we got, you know, that we needed. We got, all, we got samples of all the tumors. He's like, I couldn't cut the tumors out because they're, um, I don't know why I didn't. I can't remember. I was probably on drugs or something. But he said, I sent all the samples to, uh, to different universities across the country. He's like, but we don't know what they are. It's like, so I can't tell you if it's cancer or if it's not. Mm-hmm. He's like, what I can tell you is some of the top best people in the country are going to look at it. And you're kind of an anomaly because you're healthy, you're young, you don't smoke. You really have no, no, no reasons to have cancer. So he's like, I wouldn't worry about it. And I was like, okay. So things got interesting. So the very next day is uh, this general surgeon comes in and he pulls my chest tube out. <clears throat> and I'm not a doctor. And I don't know anything about chest tubes or how long it was supposed to be in ICU after surgery. He pulls my chest tube out because I stopped draining. There was no blood coming out of it. And it was clear. And, and uh, like, I'm going to get sent home. He's like, he's like, yeah, you seem to be stable. Your breathing is fine. Like, everything seems to be good. I'm going to send you home. And uh, he's like, but, you know, anything comes up, any complications come back to the hospital. So I go back home and I'm sitting on my couch and I'm watching TV. I'm, I remember I was watching like this vampires sitcom thing on netflix where it was like a comedy of vampires and how tough their life is actually like and i'm kind of giggling and cracking up well i have to take a leak and i get up on the couch and every movement i make excruciating like i'm talking like like the type of pain where it doesn't even hurt anymore you just are worried that you're gonna pass out yeah yep. like this pain is and that's my only concern i was like oh my gosh like every movement i make it's it's just buzz like like oh, i think i'm gonna pass out it's like, that's not good. And I get to the bathroom and I look at myself in the mirror. I straight up look like a character off of Twilight, like this shiny, glistening, pale, yellow piece of death. Like I just looked so bad, jaundice. I looked at my eyes and they're like all like yellow looking, veiny, veiny looking things. Dang. So I take a leak and I'm kind of like freaking out. It's like, man, is this how bad I look after surgery? It's like, this is nuts. It's just normal. I, yeah. This is normal. This has got to be normal. I'm, yeah. I'm sure they do this thousands of times. <laughs> and I remember the, the the one thing that saved my life was um, we do a, what's called TCCC, and I know you've done it too. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it's triage care. So you learn about, you know, ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. And I'm thinking to myself, I know that jaundice eye color is bad and pale skin, clammy. I, like, I better check circulation on extremities. So I grab my fingernails and I start looking for flashback of my fingernails. And I'm in the bathroom, mind you, so I'm like leaning on the counter. I'm looking at my fingers, nothing. And my fingers are icy cold. Wow. And I'm doing this and I got no flashback. I'm like, oh, this isn't good. And I was like, you know, I might as well call 911 because I don't, I feel like I'm going to pass out. Uh, so I call 911, ambulance arrives, they pick me up. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know much about like health, healthcare or health services or insurance. So I go in my military ID. I was like, hey, I'm active duty. Um, and so they drive me 45 minutes from my house all the way back to Portsmouth. To Portsmouth yeah. There's Chesapeake General right there. So there's Chesapeake General from my house, uh, which I should have went there. Yeah. But uh, I get to the hospital. 
and now I'm in the hospital in that, in that stretcher chair. Right. And I'm, I'm still conscious. And I remember I was under like this palm tree in the waiting room, uh, with everyone there, like people coughing, people stub their toe, you know, like yeah. you're at the emergency room. And I'm laying there in this stretcher, just arrived from an ambulance. And this lady's like talking to the lady at the front desk. And my best friend, he's a, he was a EOD officer. Uh, his name's Steven Johnson. He, uh, and he's out of the Navy now. He's at med school uh, up in Dartmouth. But at the time he was living in Virginia beach. My wife called him. My wife was uh, taking care of the kids. She's like, Dash is at the ER in Portsmouth. Uh, can you go there and check check on him and make sure he's okay? <laughs> Just the coincidence that my surgeon that actually did my lung surgery, his name was Stephen Johnson too. So my buddy Steve shows up. He sees me in the waiting room and he tells me, he's like, you were in the stretcher and you're looking up at this palm tree and you were just blowing, like I was blowing like spit bubbles. I was like popping bubbles and just like trying to stay with it. And he grabbed the car and pushed me into like pat right past opened the door and uh got me through the uh through the emergency room waiting room and put me into a room that had nobody in there yeah they just took a room put me in there this nurse walked by he's like hey he's like you i need to start an iv i need blood pressure i need this and that and uh and he's pretty savvy like he was just going through his uh he was trying to get into med school so he was doing all these tests and yeah i mean he's pretty smart but anyway He's commanding all these nurses around. The nurse is like, who are you? He's like, I'm Steven Johnson. You're like, oh, Dr. Dr. Johnson. <laughs> and uh, so I'm laying there and, I'm, and you know, I'm kind of playing around with it. I don't realize the extent of what's going on. And this is crazy, man. Like this lady walks into my room and I look at her and she looks at me and she goes, Dash? And this lady was the, uh, uh, she was the dive medical officer on one of our ships while we we're deployed overseas. No kidding, so, man. So I deployed with her and she saw me laying there and she's like, Dash. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what's going on, Doc? And uh, so she's like, Oh, we're going to take care of you. Don't worry. And what I didn't know was what they were going to do. They took my blood pressure. My heart rate was almost at like 180. Um, so my heart was just pounding mm-hmm. and my blood pressure was so low. So, of course, they started bagging me with fluids and everything to try to figure out what's going on. And they did one of the worst things you could ever do to someone with low blood pressure is just force them up full of ketamine. So they come in because I'm in excruciating pain, (coughs) super uncomfortable. And she's like, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry. And boom, flashes me with this ketamine. And I got my wife. My my wife's in the room now. I got my buddy, Steve. And all of a sudden, all I could see was this. Mm. Like I was sunken in this deep hole, no pain, but just terrified. And I could hear my wife. My wife would come into view and she'd like say something and she'd pop back out. My buddy Steve would pop in. And I remember shaking my head like, this isn't good. Yeah. Yeah. Looking through a uh, toilet paper tube, right? Dude. And uh, so they wheel me out of that room. They take me in to go uh, get an emergency uh, CT scan. And what they found out was I had 38% of my blood leaked into my chest cavity and was starting to push on my heart. And, uh, so basically I was, I was, uh, I was bleeding out internally and, uh, I they did, I was completely anemic. I was in full anemic shock, but I was still laughing. Like I was just joking around with people. So within that hour, I went straight into emergency, uh, um, uh, surgery and they drained out all the blood and I didn't have to get a blood transfusion, which is pretty sweet. I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. Um, but now here I am. I have no idea what my tumors are. I'm now anemic. 
Um, and when I wake up in the ICU after the second surgery, I have a chaplain standing over me from the command. And my wife's outside the room. And uh, this always gets me like a little choked up. But I remember that I'm looking at the chaplain and, you know, I'm a man of faith, I'm a man of God and believe in Jesus Christ with all my heart. But I remember the chaplain, he puts his hand on me. He's like, he explains to me the extent of what's going on. He's like, look, you lost a lot of blood. And, uh, and your stats are dropping like radically. And he's like, I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for your children. And he starts asking me the part that I remember the most vividly was he asked me how I wanted my, like what ambitions do I have for my children? What do you see them growing up to be? Um, your oldest son and your youngest son, like, where do you see him being in life? Um, He said something that bothered me. He was like, you know, how do you see him being raised? I was like, what do you mean? How do I see him being raised by their dad? He's like, I'm going to raise them. And I was like, and my, and I was telling him, you know, I'm, I'm completely like, I'm so drugged up. And I was telling him, I was like, like my kids are too young right now for me to even understand their capacity of what they're going to grow up to be. Mm-hmm. Like I've got so much more time I have to spend with them so I can nourish them and raise them up to who they want to be, not who I want them to be. And uh, then he told me, he's like, well, I don't know if you're going to have that time. And I looked and I was like, of course I'm going to have that time. He's like, this is nothing. He's like, okay, well, so he ended up praying for me. And he left. And then my, my preacher from, from my church came and he starts praying over me. My wife comes into the room and of course they prayed with her. So they already, so my wife knows more about it than I do. Yeah. My wife comes in and she is just, oh, uh, it was, it was so painful to see my wife that way because she, they basically told her that her husband wasn't going to make it. Like uh, this, this might be the last couple of times you get to see him. Dude, that's, that's, that's on. I mean, how do you feel about that dash? Because I mean, was that, was that the right thing to say in that moment? I mean, was that, I mean, obviously that guy was, you know, they were just being real with you guys, but I mean, gosh, how do you freaking process that dude? Like when somebody straight up tells you, you know, the chances are you're not going to have that time. Like, how do you man? It's just mind-boggling how you were able to just maintain uh, your. I don't know if you want to call it courage or or just your strength when somebody's standing over you, uh, you know, hitting you with stuff like that. That's unbelievable, dude. Yeah. Well, the thing is, we've been told that our whole lives. You and me. We've been told we're not good enough. We're not going to make it. Yeah. Uh, you might as well quit. I've I've always been told that. Yeah. Like yeah. I've been told that from people who don't understand, like what it, you know who I am or who you are. Good point, you know? brother. Or, or, and I took it as a challenge. Actually, you know that rage. I think we all. I think all all special forces guys might, should have it. Probably do have it in them. But you get that fire that burns inside of you when when you see an obstacle or you see. Uh, you see someone getting hurt. You see uh, something that you know that you're supposed to go do. Yeah. And and nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing will stop that drive. Nothing. Like, you, you know, you've heard about you know our brothers that I remember my a good friend of mine. And this happened a couple not too many years ago. Um, buddy Kyle, he got shot right in the face, like right in the face, right next to me, like yep. straight through the mouth, blew out on the ground, done. And you're at night looking through tubes and you're just like, holy shit. And within two hours, he, he has ace bandage wrapped all around his jawline. He still has his helmet on. He pops back up, grabs his 416 and starts providing overwatch. <laughs> yeah, that's it, brother. That's-, like, that's, that's the caliber of people that we hang out with. And, you know, I, would, I wish I could, I could claim like I, I'm that type of guy, but I, 
I've never been shot in the face and I, I don't plan on ever getting shot in the face. It's not yeah. ideal, but when I see people like that, that I'm surrounded by, I'm challenged to live up to those expectations. If Kyle can bounce back from the, from, from his circumstances and still per, like do what he's supposed to do mm-hmm. in all, like I'm, I can't even imagine. And then I go to jump, I go to free fall jump master with the guy. He's sitting right next to me, scars everywhere down his neck. And he's like looking, he's like, what'd you get for, you know, number 57. We're like cheating on this test. He's like, I got B. He's like, this class sucks. He's like, just shut up. You got shot in the face. Like you can't talk to me right now. <laughs> but like, so I have a chaplain, I have all these people praying over me, telling me I'm not going to make it, how they want me to raise my kids. And I'm not taking it, man. Like it's, it's not, it's not something I was going to swallow. It's yep. like, I'm going to make it out of here and I'm going to raise my kids. Because I I never got a dad, and they're gonna have a dad, I guarantee it. And uh, that was just that was it. And then my wife came in, and she smacked me around too, and she told me I'm not gonna die, mm-hmm. and told me I don't have time to die, and I've got too much stuff to do. And uh, we prayed together, and I remember her prayer was really a lot more powerful than any of the chaplain or preachers. But um, she didn't pray for me to recover. She didn't pray for me to ultimately get the strength and and walk out of the hospital, we, we pray for God, God's will to be done and not mm-hmm. ours. And what God has for our lives. And we also said, like, we want to be a beacon of his testimony. We want to share his gospel as much as we can. And um, we just asked for guidance and clearance and, and for peace of mind to know that his hand was in, in everything. Yeah. And we accepted it. That's the thing. We knew his hand was in everything, but we accepted his will. Yeah. And, uh, and that, I mean, my wife motivates me more than I think anybody in the world. And she's a strong woman, dude. She's a strong woman. And yeah. she, you know, I started walking around that ICU uh, three days later, completely anemic, like um, just, just a total mess. And I walked out of that ICU a month later and I was home. <coughs> and I wish the story got, in, got better from there, but it didn't. Because uh, right when I got home after living a, a month in the ICU in Portsmouth, I got a phone call from uh, Duke University about my tumors and they found out that it was malignant and uh, I was labeled with stage two adenocarcinoma, which is lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so that started a whole new process where I had to drive down to North Carolina, consult with them. They couldn't do the surgery on me, but they removed my lung because I had no blood and the chances of me making out of that surgery are really rough. So he's like, I need you to heal for another month get your blood levels back up, take a bunch of iron supplements, and then we'll put you under and remove your lung. So now after going through everything that I already went through to losing all my blood, now I'm in recovery mode to go back under the knife. Yeah. Yeah. You got a whole month of this 